Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Also, find us on Facebook, too. Search for Political Beats. We ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or write at nationalreview.com. Click on Podcasts in the upper left-hand corner. You'll find Political Beats and all the other fine NR podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share, and also leave reviews. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff! I got to tell you, Scott, I'm tired of you. I'm tired of your heroin habit that is spiraling out of control. I'm tired of your attempted assertions of dominance. And I'm going to give you this ultimatum that you will never get more than 45% of the speaking time on an episode of Political Beats. Well, if that's the case, then we're going to make the episode twice as long so that we can just have the, you know, the same amount of speaking yeah, listen, time. Uh, listen, you can take it or you can leave it. But I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> if you leave it, I'm never talking to you again. <laughs> Find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest for this episode, a D.C.-based journalist whose coverage of the White House, Capitol Hill, and other political ventures, or venues and matters of importance can uh, be found in The Independent, Newsweek, Breakfast Media, Political Magazine, and other places where quality news can be found. You can also follow him on Twitter as well, at Andrew Feinberg, which is appropriate because... It's Andrew Feinberg. Andrew, thanks for joining us on Political Beats. Thank you for having me. Before we get to our discussion of our band today, we, we invite you to tell people a little about yourself and a little about what you do in D.C. Well, um, I don't do much in D.C. because no one really goes downtown anymore. Uh, <laughs> but um, I... Cover, Tell us about uh, what you do from home, okay? Well, okay. For, well, uh, I write about goings-on uh, at the White House, uh, in, in Congress, and on the 2020 campaign trail, virtual or, or otherwise. Uh, most of it ends up in The Independent. Uh, I've had some in Newsweek uh, this year. And uh, anyone else wants to hire me, well, I'm available. <laughs> there you go. Not a bad uh, idea to, to make that clear. Uh, again, you can find Andrew on Twitter, too, at Andrew Feinberg. And the band that we discussed today, that Andrew has chosen for us to uh, kick around, is none other than Husker Du. Andrew, we turn the floor back over to you. You can tell us why you love this band, how you got into them, and why anybody else should care about this music. Well, I first heard a Husker Du song my senior year in high school, but it wasn't played by Husker Du. It was a Green Day cover of the song Don't Want to Know If You Were Lonely, uh, which they did for MTV. And I thought, wow, this is a really cool song. And I found out shortly after that that wasn't one of their songs. So I wanted to know more about the band. Uh, the Internet did exist in those days. And <laughs> I was able I was able to find uh, more uh, and I kept listening to more and more and more. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that every every band that I that I like growing up really uh, owes their existence to Husker Du. Uh, without Husker Du, you don't have the Pixies. You don't have Nirvana. Uh, I, I can think of many other bands, but not off the top of my head. But they're, they're one of the most influential, uh, I would say, bands of the late 20th century. And... 
you can tr you can trace so many uh, so many artists back to that trio that broke up in 3000 And then I realized, oh, wait, Husker Du. Apparently, they took their name from a board game that I'm completely unfamiliar with. Um, Where but the child cannot whip the adult. I, you see, I, I, I've never played it. And, you know, I would not want to put myself up against my son uh, in a game like that because he would probably <laughs> spank me. Um, but the thing about the Huskers were like they, they weren't a band that was ever for me at least in my childhood they were never played on the radio you never saw them on MTV you certainly didn't see them on VH1 uh, you, their CDs of course kind of famously their albums have languished they've never been remastered they've never had a compilation of the best of Husker Du or anything like that this is a band that was almost like a challenge band you had to get into them the straight way just by getting the records and listening to the music and i didn't do that until i was in like about my senior year of high school uh, and of course what am i i'm a high school senior i'm 17 years old i am full of what what you might imagine is teenage angst as all seniors and juniors in high school are uh i, I i'm an angsty dreamy musical kid a little bit weird, but deeply invested in music, got a lot of emotions running through my mind and my heart, and then I find an album called Zen Arcade. album is one of those albums and I, I will insist upon this first of all I think it's one of the five 
or so greatest albums of the 1980s, but it is one of those albums that will change your life, particularly if you find it at the right time. Now, of course, I figure a lot of the people, most of the people in our audience are a bit older than that, but I, I, I still think you can go, you can listen to it now even and go back and just imagine what it was like to be a weird, uh, you know, an uncertain, you know, kid and, you know, not know like how to process emotions, not know about your future. And then this music just spoke to you. And of course, from that moment onwards, I was a Husker Du fan. And the thing I, I discovered as I went and bought the rest of their discography, there weren't too many albums to get. They only have, I think, like six or seven albums, um, is that all of this work stands up. Uh, at this, the, Even their earliest phase, which is, of course, very, very, I guess, for you know kind of you know boomer classic rock sensibilities it will be a a, a a maybe a difficult pill to swallow at first that stuff still holds up too uh what you have to love about the hooskers what stood out the most to me about them is how they were fearless this is a trio it's a rock trio so it's a power trio right it's, it's kind of like you know cream or the who or you know the who of course i always think of as a trio because roger daltrey just sang um they did everything that they did with a bass, a drum, and a guitar. And that's it. That's all they needed to create some of the densest, most amazing sheets of sound uh, that you have ever heard in the 80s. And uh, they introduced me to a, a genre of music. Their early phase of their career introduced me to a genre of music that I had never even previously come close to touching, which is hardcore. Uh, I went back after I'd gotten into the Hooskers, and then I got into the Minutemen. I got into Black Flag, Meat Puppets, a lot of these other great SST uh, label bands, you know, that had that early uh, indie rock hardcore sound, Minor Threat, uh, Fugazi. Uh, but I had never heard anything like this music before in my life, and I got it. I heard this music and. Through all the noise, all the pain, all the rage and angst and anger, it made sense. And then beyond that, there was this beautiful lyricism in their music as well. There was this beautiful love of melody that <clears throat> they had always had and they had disguised early in their career when they were just you know playing at being punks and hardcore guys, uh, but then just emerged and, and, and kind of took over the band. And that's kind of how they ended their career and how Bob Mould, of course, continued his career after the Hooskers. But, uh, you know, that's just my personal, you know, uh, experience with them. Uh, it's a band that, that has always meant a lot to me. And every time I go back and I listen to these albums, I'm bowled over again, which is why the last couple of weeks have just been so fantastic. Because, uh, you know, I've just been like, you know, you know, listening to Candy Apple Grey and Warehouse Songs and Stories and New Day Rising and kind of re reliving all of my old feelings and thoughts that I'd gone through, but also kind of thrilling to the idea that I'm going to be exposing a bunch of people who have never even heard of the name of this band to some of the best music of the entire decade.
Soviet experience because that's, that's essentially where I was uh, aware of Husker Du for a long time. And I do know that one of my good friends in college had handed me a Husker Du album at some point, And I tried like heck to remember which one it was this week, but I'm getting old. And that was like 20 years ago. Um, I, I think it was Flip Your Wig, but it could have been it could have been New Day Rising. Um, and, and so I, I had heard some of the band. I actually had heard more, uh, I don't say more, but certainly have heard uh, Sugar uh, because they were very big when I was working in, in uh, around the time I was working in music radio. And so I, I played some of their songs on the college station. And so I knew Bob Mould. Uh, I, I know how prolific he has been in his solo career uh, after Husker <laughs> Du. Uh, but, I think I think he just announced that he's releasing a boxed set of all yes. of his post Husker Du like releases. Twenty four albums. Twenty four albums. Right? It's like holy Christ! I don't, I don't know how you're going to get through that. Uh, but 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 really, for the most part, especially with the early stuff, uh, the stuff we'll talk about first. This is my first opportunity to to really go from pillar to post uh, on on Husker Du. One thing I'll, I'll say on the outset, and we'll talk much deeper about a lot of things, certainly, but. Um, this was this really was a consistent band. You could enter virtually anywhere. I don't know if I'd recommend Land Speed Record. Uh, you could enter virtually anywhere and still find uh, the qualities that made them such a, a really great band uh, of their era. And you can jump around uh, from any of those, as Jeff said, about six, seven albums that came out during the career. Um, you know, in terms of finding differentiation, there, there's production differences, and on the later albums, they, they'd add a few extra instruments here and there to flush out their their sound on, on a few songs. But by and large, you know, once you have the Husker Du template, you, you know approximately what you're going to get on the albums, and it, it tweak it a bit, and you can see some, uh, let's see, maturation in some of the songwriting and, and the lyrics. Uh, but, but but by and large, you know what you're going to get on a Husker Du album from from start to finish. Just a really consistent, consistent band, too. I would actually, yeah. Andrew, what were you going to say? No, I think I think that that's that's one of the greatest things about this band is that there's really no such thing as a bad Husker Du album. I'm some of them. There are songs you can take or leave. You don't have to like every single song and every single album. But there is not a single record in their catalog that uh, that I could say, or really anyone I, th I think could say, oh, th that just sucks. That's you know, that's their that's their worst. That's not even worth listening to. Well, I mean, I think I would actually also disagree a little bit with Scott when I say that, like, you know, it's always the same. You're going to get the same kind of a thing with this band. I think one of the things that strikes me the most about the Hooskers, and, and I guess what I loved about them when I finally, you know, got all of their material and, you know, sort of, you know, took in the breadth of their development is that there's a strong development. Now, there's a bit of artificiality to that development. Who, you know, okay, I guess maybe I'll start by saying, well, who are these guys, right? There's three members of this band, right? There's they they they're out of St. Paul, Minnesota. There's obviously is you know anybody who's listened to some of our older shows on the podcast knows we we've talked about the incredible Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul area rock scene. It wasn't just the Hooskers. I mean, Prince was out there too. Of course, he's off in his own sort of world, doing his <laughs> own thing. Uh, but you know, the replacements come from there too. You've got uh, even. Um, Soul Asylum. Soul Asylum. Soul Asylum. I mean, heck, even later on, you get like Trip Shakespeare and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, gosh, you know, if we get into the 90s, a hey, semi sonic, I suppose, right? Um, 
but the Huskers and the Replacements, I think, were kind of like the two flagship bands. Uh, but, you know, Soul Slime kind of made it big a little after them. But they were huge out in this scene in the early 80s. And what was the scene uh, for them? It was hardcore post-punk, which is where you got these very loud, very noisy, very angry and angsty bands. Of course, the Replacements were kind of like drunken louts who were just having a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Hooskers were, were three guys. It was uh, Greg Norton, who was their, dr- or their bassist, and it was Grant Hart, their drummer, who was also a vocalist and also a songwriter. And then it was Bob Mould, who was also a vocalist and also a songwriter. So you had a lot of really interesting tension between the two lead guys in this group. All right. Although, Nor- I, although I, I wouldn't say that, that the Huskers were not drunken louts, uh, at least in the early period. Well, they were they were drunken as everybody else was during this time. Because come on, it's it's Minneapolis and St. Paul in the early 1980s. You, you, listen, you're going to have like you know a beer, right? Uh, Just <laughs> gonna, a beer? No, okay, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're going to have 13 beers. Maybe you're not going to have as many beers as Paul Westerberg would, but you're going to have a lot of beers. It was it was obviously a very sort of you know crazy youth scene. Uh, but what set them apart from everyone else is sort of like the sincerity of their lyrics. The replacements were known as this sort of wacky, off the wall kind of funny, goofy band that did all sorts of you know strange antics on stage, uh, and and then Husker do. You know, as you might even imagine from the fact that they made their their band name this very kind of like esoteric Norwegian or Swedish, I don't even know what it is, sort of board game reference. Danish. That, it's Danish. Danish. It's yeah. Danish. Okay, one of those Scandinavian. You know, you know, of course, all the Scandahuvians in, in northern Minnesota, you know, you know, they can probably differentiate this stuff in a way that I never have been able to. But like they were very serious. This was a band that played for keeps. They got up there on stage and they screamed their hearts out and everything was dead serious. All of their releases were dead serious. And the funny thing about them is that there's this been this new box set recently uh, called Savage Young Do, which is a three CD set that I just highly recommend. You, you should already be a fan of the band before you buy this. Um, but if you are a fan of the band, you should not be without it because I think it's almost revelatory. It shows you that even in their earliest days when they were just a bunch of kids in 1979 i think you know mold met hart at a record store and hart was the guy who sold him his weed <laughs> and they decided <laughs> to form a band with greg norton you know that's the way kids get together into rock groups right yeah you know um they even in their earliest days they had a flair for melody they had a flair for song construction and composition on their first ever released single, which I don't know if you guys have an opinion on, but it's a song called Statues, which is kind of hilarious to hear. You can get it on the um, 
everything uh, falls apart and more re-release. It's on Rhino Records. Good. It's a decent album. We'll get to it. But they include the first single as a bonus track. And the funny thing about it is that Husker Du does not sound like a punk band or a hardcore band at all. They sound like Public Image Limited. Now, again, in another band, that there may not have, be a lot of access points for people who listen to, the, to our show. But if you've ever heard Metal Box, this is Johnny Lydon, the guy who uh, was the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. This is what he did as a, a successor to that. And it's a much better band, actually. Uh, it's post-punk in its most abrasive and grating way. And uh, that's what Husker Du decided to actually use as their, you know, their, their coming out statement, their first song. Uh, and I think that it's actually quite good, but it shows you that there were many Husker Dues in that early era of the band. And the one that we end up hearing on Land Speed Record, which of course we're going to have to talk about now, is just only one image that many alternate images could have been for their first release. I think that's my main takeaway from Statues 2 is that what you hear on Land Speed Record, which we can discuss now, is a, a band that is playing fast and furious, uh, essentially hardcore. And that's not necessarily my, my genre, but that's not exactly what you hear on uh, Statues. So you have a, a little different feel and certainly some hints as to things that would come later. Uh, Land Speed Record is this live album from what early 1982, I believe, and yeah, you, you have to know it, it sounds terrible. It's it's well, it's awful. It's it's, not, it's not a, the new the 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 the, the uh, release of Land Speed Record that's in the Savage Young Do box set actually sounds pretty good, right? Uh, because it, it's from a different tape. <laughs> the the original. Uh, the original tape of the show that became Land Speed Record, from from what I remember, was stolen out of the band's van, and the master that's been used over the years is just in in terrible condition. Condition, and so, so like this one's from a couple weeks later, and it's basically the same set, but it sounds it, it so much same, clearer. Yeah, exact same set list, same show, just not sound like crap. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, here's the thing. Like, the story, of course, is that uh, they started getting, falling in with other kind of punk bands. They started playing loud and they started playing fast. And they, they, they came to the attention of groups like, you know, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag. And that brought them to SST, SST Records. This is a, 
a famously fraught relationship. One of the things that has always bugged me about the Hooskers is that their production, as <laughs> you can hear on this album, is less than ideal. And you will never get remastered or remixed versions of any of these albums because Greg Jen, the guy who's you know, member of Black Flag who also owns SST is uh, notoriously tight-fisted about letting go of his original masters and nobody can seem to come to any agreement so we just have to take the albums as they are uh but they had gone touring on the west coast and you know in- influenced by a lot of Los Angeles southern California like you know hardcore and punk bands uh, they just decided they wanted to be the fastest band on the planet so uh, <laughs> that's what you get and they called it land speed record for a reason and the thing about this record is i don't even know how I mean, how do you excerpt a song from this record well we would you, you can't we, even tell where songs start and stop no, no, you can't. You can't. The like, answer look, is you don't. You just you, don't. You don't. You don't. But there's like, like, like little rants that will sometimes emerge like, oh, Shakur, oh, Shakur, don't want to die in your f***ing war. It's just like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's angry young men ranting, gobbing, and spitting, playing at the top of their lungs. And you can only imagine what it must have been like to be there at, at, at uh, you know, the 7th Street entry at First Avenue. And uh, you're listening to this in the front row. Uh, did, did you – you know, suffer permanent hearing damage. You probably did. I don't even know to understand how uh, the rest of the band didn't themselves. But it's intense, it's angry, and the funny thing about that Savage Young Do box set is you can hear earlier versions, demo versions of these songs, and they sound much more measured and much quieter, slower, more melodic. And so you see that they were clearly trying to do something. This is almost – I'm not going to call it a pose. It wasn't like they were being phony or just trying to like you know, get on board with a trend. But they clearly decided like we are going to be the most aggressive version of ourselves that we are capable of being. And what that creates is – this is an album. It's a live album. It's a debut album. But it's like, what, 24 minutes long and there are 17 songs? Not only are there 17 songs on the album, but uh, I think like it's the last song is five and a half minutes long, which is hilarious. Yeah. So if you subtract that out, the average length of every song is like 57 seconds or thereabouts. It's really short, brusque, weird, disarming, not for everyone. It was definitely not the way you want to come into this group unless you happen to be there in Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, drinking your beers and getting really angry and taking a bunch of speed. <laughs> By the way, that's that's why they called it one of the reasons why they called it Land Speed Record is they all freely admit that they were just you know out of their minds on amphetamines when they were doing this sort of stuff. Uh, I have to say though, I listen to it maybe once every four or five months or so because hey, it only takes twenty four right. minutes it to listen too long, to, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and I get it, and I enjoy it. I enjoy chaos. There's something about absolute 
inherently obnoxiously loud chaos that will always appeal to me, has always appealed to me, despite the fact that, like, at heart, I'm a prog rocker. Uh, and this this is, like, one of those great – it's almost like an art. It's a, it, it's an art statement. It, it's, uh, it's like um, – you know, uh, like an Andy Warhol picture where he, he, <laughs> he takes the Marilyn Monroe and he like tinges it, you know, in different colors. And he says, Hey, this is now art. This is us playing like incredibly loud noise as fast as we can in, in incredibly crappy sound. Uh, we are clearly making some sort of aesthetic statement that is ancillary to the actual music that is being played. course that wasn't going to be what Bruce do was going to be and that of course brings us to their second album which is their first real studio album and that's everything falls apart and this is where you really start seeing the first hints that these guys weren't just like you know angry squealing punk kids but there was a lot more underneath this didn't fully put it together on everything falls apart but i do enjoy this record a heck of a lot more yeah there are moments go ahead andrew no, I, I, I think that's true. Um, I, the thing about everything falls apart that's, that's always sort of, I don't want to say bothered me, uh, but I haven't liked it as, as much as any of the, of the rest of their catalog. Is it, it's, I think it's a little uneven. Uh, not bad. There's no bad songs on it. But it's, it's, I think it's more of a transitional record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's good to listen to you know, if, you, you know, if you really like that that kind of genre either the you know the heart especially if you're into hardcore uh, which i am but not that much uh, which is i shouldn't say as a as a dc resident but there's <laughs> but, minor threat is so ashamed of you uh ian mckay is gonna kill me in my sleep yeah. but um but I, I i i do think the just the transitional nature of, of the music on there makes it something you definitely want to listen to if you're just kind of taking a journey through their catalog if you're starting with land speed record you can't skip it right well again again it's even shorter than land speed record it's only 20 minutes long on its original version the bonus tracks on the reissue take up more space than the original <laughs> album god i love this I, I, i'm of course everyone who's listened to the show knows me well enough that knows that i i praise brevity in albums it's one of, one of the reasons why the minutemen have always been one of my favorite bands i mean in, right there in the name you know we're gonna do you a song whole thing in like you know 45 seconds uh this is that album that most clearly encapsulates that um 
and yet also they'll throw on a Donovan cover. I mean, I got to tell you, Which I love good. that stupid. A stupid sunshine Superman song. Doom doom boom 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 And you know, Grant Hart sings his heart off on that thing. They take it completely seriously. That's the thing about it. They don't treat it as a joke. They just take it straight. I will. I will actually revise my revise and extend my previous remarks sure. uh, with, with without if any if unless there's an objection. Uh, <laughs> in in a free land, I, I think is an essential track. Right. That's the X from the I think the EP that came it, out just it, before yeah, it's, the album. Yeah. It's it's from the Everything Falls Apart and more. Right. But it's I, a it's a bonus track on the album, but it's a great song. <laughs> Not even just that. That's to me, in a free land is significant because that's the first hint that you get of that shredding Bob Mold guitar sound. And I think, by the way, uh, you know that's going to be the thing that I, I want to really talk about that sets off the rest of their career, at least you know this next part of their career from this early stuff. But before I go on, like there's there's stuff on this record that really does from the gut that holds up. Mm-hmm. That that whole rat a tat opening. That's awesome. Wheels is a great song. What were you going to say? No, it is. And and it's actually, it's one of the few songs that they regularly played that was uh, co-written by Greg Norton. Right. One of the very, Greg Norton stopped writing songs after this career. Right. You know what he does? I had, I didn't even know that. That's the other thing about uh, early Husker Du vocals. uh, Doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not going to be hearing very much of them and they aren't very melodic either. So that's just, you know, this is the way of these things.
not only that, but the title track, I think, yeah. is, is to me, that's That's where an actual first... song. I mean, it's an actual song. There's an actual it's... chorus. There's It's punchy. There's a chord progression. You can fi- you can see something going on there. There's there's also that, that melodic guitar, too. That, I guess, actually, because I think that comes out right before In a Free Land. That's the first point where you hear Bob Mould probably, you know, he got his preamp set that he'd be sticking with for the rest <laughs> of Husker's career. That guitar line cuts through. And then, you know, you know, you hear that and you realize that everything falls apart is going to be the future of this band. It's not going to be stuff like Bricklayer necessarily. seconds i actually really enjoy uh because hey it's 31 seconds we could drop the clip in of the song right now and uh you know it would just be 31 seconds over and done uh, i love stuff like that because of its brevity but there's no question that this was you know the prehistory of Husker Du and that everything that comes after this is so much different from them and i think the thing of course that matters the most is that they finally signed permanently with sst um land speed record they released that on SST, but they actually did it, I think, because like Mike Watt of the Minutemen uh, said, like, hey, you know, this is a nice tape. Let's just release it on you know, a one-off. And then they released Everything Falls Apart independently. And then they finally signed a long-term record contract with SST. And now they're being professionally produced. I use professional in air quotes. <laughs> uh, big air be- quotes. Very yeah, big air quotes. Because I think the big problem with the Hooskers has always been their production. The, the house producer for SST, Spot. You know, they go fly out to like, you know, California, SoCal, and uh, he would produce them and it would take like, they would basically do every song in nearly one take and there wouldn't be a lot of post-production and not a lot of attempts to uh, create a nice balance of sound. Somehow it all still manages to work, but it it is kind of lo-fi before its time. But Metal Circus is, I think, one of the best things that Husker do ever released. It's an EP. It's you know, again, their albums, their first album was 24 minutes, their second one was 19 minutes. This one is an EP that's 19 minutes. They like brevity, but now they're writing real songs. Who wants to talk about this one first? Go ahead, Andrew. I'll, I'll do. Yep. Well, I, the the thing the thing that you have to know about Metal Circus is if if the previous work everything falls apart and Linspeed record is is the prehistory. Metal Circus is like it, uh, is like an opening statement, and if you if you start on side one with Real World, it's it's a hardcore track, but it's not a hardcore track. Uh, same thing with Denly Skies. There's it's a little more melodic. It's a little more complex than your average hardcore track. It's fast though. But then you get to it's not funny anymore. And that's where it begins. That's where I, I think the Husker do that, that everyone knows and loves. I think that's where that's where it begins with it's not funny anymore. You can do what you want to do. 
It's not funny more. Is a pop song disguised as a hardcore song. It's a Grant Hart song, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the kind of ongoing narrative of this band is going to be the evolving war between Bob Mould and Grant Hart as songwriters. They're both asserting themselves, and they're both trying to top one another with their music. So Mould comes out with Real World. Real World is, I think, again, one of their finest tracks. Might make my top five at the end. And, you know, what I was saying earlier about how like that, that guitar sound, that sheets of sound guitar fed through his preamp you know setup is it's it's it is singularly Husker Du's you first hear it here you you know when he goes into that opening you know fanfare da 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 then you realize that's a sound you haven't heard from any other band of this era and you're never going to hear from any other band again it is literally Bob Molds and Bob Molds alone But then you get to It's Not Funny Anymore, and you hear Mole playing a heart song, and Hart is singing this one. Same kind of a song, but used in service of a completely different thing. When they get to that chorus, you know, you're like, wait a second, that, that, you know, they know the monkeys could have recorded that. <laughs> Seriously, you could, you, could, you could give that to you know, uh, you know, Mickey Dolenz, and they could make a good pop track out of it it's just played in the hardcore style and i again i just i have this is the first of many albums where i will say i have almost no criticisms of it it's very brief it's only it's only seven songs uh but it's it is as essential to understanding who's could do as a band as anything that they would do afterwards this is such a clear uh leap forward from the last album um advancing in, in songwriting and, and, and skill and uh, and finding those those melodies and i i think something that at least i'll probably discuss uh, as we move on is, is at least early on uh how much more accessible heart songs are to a to a new listener than perhaps mold songs are although that would that would change a little bit or at least become more even i think the closer we'd get to the end of the who's could do a career Certainly here on, I think, Metal Circus, uh, it's not funny anymore. As Jeff said, it's just a pop, it's just a pop melody. Um, two, two minutes and 11 seconds. Uh, one of the songs, first songs, too, where you actually can understand the lyrics uh, <laughs> fairly clearly. Uh, and then Hart's other uh, con- contribution here that, that is really special is, is Diane. Um, I think those are the only two songs. His, both the songs on Metal Circus are just outstanding. Uh, Diane, the story of... Uh, rape and, and murder of a waitress in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and perhaps or definitely based on a, at a on an actual story. But you have this this hypnotic uh, sort of sort of drum track, this tom-tom beat to it, uh, set on this mechanical sort of screeching guitar line from Mold, 
which would be a blueprint that would be used uh, again and again. I, I, I'm a big fan of Spoon, uh, perhaps on this show somewhat uh, somewhat soon, we'll see. But uh, if you listen to the start of Diane, there's a song from Spoon called Don't Let It Get You Down, which is, um, I would say, borrowed. Pretty uh, clearly borrowed, Pretty clearly yeah. borrowed that same chord progression. Lovingly, lovingly ripped yes, off. Yes, of course. Uh, it's just it, it, It's not theft, it's a tribute. <laughs> Um, and Hart's, Hart's lyrics are, are great here. His vocals, I should say, are great here. The intensity, the despair. You know, Diane becomes uh, very clearly two syllables. Die, Anne, in this story about a, a rape and murder told, told from the rapist and, and murderer's point of view. So, you know, you see Hart's first steps here as a real quality songwriter. And, and overall, the first indications that they were going to do, I think, I think more. They were capable of stretching some boundaries and, and integrating some really interesting melodies and, and song structures on top of, as Jeff said, that very trademark mold guitar sound, which is all over, uh, like, First to the Last Calls, which is a mold song that I, I like a lot. That you have that, that mold guitar sound uh, blending with the, the the sense of melody that has begun to creep into some of the some of the works. So the morbidity of these tracks, you know, especially Diane, of course, wow, just dark as hell, right? Uh, it, it, it's kind of what got the Huskers their reputation in the early, you know, the Minneapolis hardcore scene. You know, hardcore is already hardcore, <laughs> but but these guys were harder than hardcore, right? Like they were like singing about topics that were just like really dark and weird and uh very serious they, again the contrast was always made between them and, and the mats you know the hooskers are from st paul the replacements are from minneapolis that they're much more of a good time fun times drunk band i think it's the and, other way around actually no i'm i'm, I'm pretty certain that, that that the hooskers are from the st paul area as opposed to minneapolis but you know what someone's gonna fact check us when they listen to this show and i may be wrong and i may look like a fool <laughs> But I do think that it's funny that <clears throat> that on the song, it's not funny anymore. Grant Hart does write that line. He sings that line where he says, you know, play what you want to play, hear what you want to hear. Don't worry about the result or the effect it has on your career. 
they're going to do what it is they want to do. They aren't going to give two flying flips. And if they want to be ultra serious and make this sort of like a pilgrimage to church, you know, to receive your sermon for the day or to, you know, to get like, you know, get all of your angst out on the on the floor of a club where everyone is, you know, pogoing around. That's what they're going to do. And that, of course, leads us to what I just to this day think is one of the most cathartic and incredible albums well, of hold on. Hold on, the hold 1980s. There because well, what am I missing? If you remember, something happened in between Metal Circus and Zen Arcade. They released the greatest single cover of any song in the history of rock and roll music. Okay, so it's funny you mentioned that. I was going to talk about that after Zen Arcade because <laughs> it, it's all from those same sessions. But what Andrew is talking about is eight miles high. Now, if you guys listen to the show, you heard our cover, our episode on the birds with Nick Gillespie. We talked about what a fantastic and revolutionary song Eight Miles High is. And I think that song is essentially, you would have thought if there was any song that was uncoverable, like why would you do <laughs> another version of it? Eight Miles High would qualify because who's going to top like, you know, that Coltrane guitar solo that McGuinn plays or, you know, the harmonies or, you know, Michael Clark's drums or whatnot. Uh, and the birds then do that and then Husker Du does this and again I in my covers episode the one that we did geez, geez three years ago at this point uh, this I singled out as one of the greatest covers of all time Bob Mould just absolutely shredding his guitar and turning it into sort of that signature sound, that signature instrument that defines Husker Du during this era. And it's not even just his guitar. It's the bark of his voice. Uh, this is the thing. You know, people say like, oh, they're not singing on these records, right? It's Bob Mould just sort of screaming, eight miles high, how? But you know what? When you have a bark that powerful, you know, like a seal right up in, in in your ear, just like screaming into your eardrums. 
I, I'm sorry. That's an instrument that you have to respect. It may not be melodic, but it has force. Absolutely. I mean, that cover, you know, I, I love the birds, one of my favorite bands. Um, but this is a, this is a whole other thing. Uh, and it's not as tra- quite transcendent a cover as say, um, Nine Inch Nails cover of uh, Johnny Cash's or Johnny Cash's cover of Nine Inch Nails Hurt. I'm sorry, but it, it's it's. I mean, I can't even think of words to describe it. it it's so superlative, and, I, and it stands out so much as just. It just hits you. You you put this re- you put the record on, and this wall, this just molten metal wall of guitar, just hits you. And it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it never lets up. me the most about it is that you know it's not just thrashing like that bob mold has technique real technique on his guitar you hear him playing he he actually hits most of the notes that roger mcguinn hits <laughs> on uh the original eight miles high uh and he can play he has the chops and then he puts it in service too i guess because me I would I would say it's one of the ultimate hardcore songs, if, if not for the fact that some of what's coming next on this next album actually qualify in that matter for me. But uh, before we move on, Scott, do you have any thoughts about this, or shall we move on to the most adolescent album of adolescent albums? You can move on because people can uh, can go to the cover version episode and hear much more about this. Uh, that is this that is true. We, did, we talked about it for quite some time. So what do we say about Zen Arcade? I mean, I'm laying my cards down right now. I think it's one of the greatest albums of all time probably top 20 of all time certainly top five for the 1980s uh an album that that sort of changed the way that i heard and understood music and what's so funny about it from perspective of their career is that you know prior to this they'd been releasing you know these very short ep almost style records you know they had an ep that was as long as their other two albums right this is you know 20 minutes and out uh and then here here's a double album 75 minutes long and not just a double album a concept album a concept album what is the concept see by the way andrew that's funny you say that because i've always thought that like the who zen arcade is best heard not necessarily as a concept album about like oh here's this kid and he you know he leaves his home because he has a bad family life and he goes out into the world and he has disappointing experiences romantically and then he decides that like oh maybe i should give up and you know uh you know kill myself but no i'm not going to give up and i'm going to go back on to living life that's the, 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 the nominal narrative of the album. But you know what? Just treat this as a series of deeply felt character sketches <laughs> about what it feels to be 17. <laughs> and there you have <laughs> Zen Arcade. 
there are songs on this album that are almost incomprehensibly strong and overwhelmingly powerful. They're difficult. They're difficult songs. Like I even joked about this on Twitter. The first half of this album has a lot of their more hardcore stuff on it. And I'm like, how am I going to get the normies to understand a song like Pride? All right, Pride is a minute-long, just absolutely noxious, feral blast of self-hatred. It's Bob Moan screaming about, like, oh, my stupid pride, my selfish pride. I've ruined things. I've made a horrible mess of everything. It's it's self-loathing, basically packed into one minute of the most hardcore music you will ever hear. And, uh, yeah, it, it may not be for everyone, but it most certainly is for me. Genius is in arcade is that this isn't at all what most of this album is like. Scott, I would really be interested in knowing what your opinions on this are because I feel like this may be the first time you've ever heard it. It, uh, it almost certainly is the first time I've ever heard it. And I uh, sympathize with your efforts to get people to, to sort of latch on to the more hardcore elements of the album. We had talked uh, via, via uh, Twitter uh, beforehand, you know, side two here, or you know, the, the second side of the first LP of of of, of Zen Arcade, is the one that I, I say I struggled with. I mean, I can see what's what's happening here, but it's the one right. I, I I could not embrace, and that probably means it definitely means I don't have the album as 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 quite as highly, uh, uh, you know, quite as highly respected, but quite as highly placed as you do. And it probably is a lot of that side two. You you have four straight mold tracks to kick off side two of this this four-sided album uh beyond the threshold and uh, the biggest lie and i'll never forget you and and one more and that that's that's certainly the most hardcore aspect of zen arcade uh it's it's not cut terribly much with some of the more uh pop or melodic aspects of the songwriting that you will find elsewhere on the album um, and those are some great moments. Um, you know, go, go, some of the other tracks. Just a bit. what's going on is pretty good, though. Uh, yeah, and that's and, what's, and of course, go what's ahead. going on is also 1979, yes. as I also pointed out in our Smashing Pumpkins episode. <laughs> yes. I, I, oh my God! I've n- yeah. You, know, you just same said, riff. <laughs> you just said that like just now, and and it just clicked. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh my God. Same chord changes. Yep. I mean, actually, you know, today I, I, I learned <clears throat> something you learned today, right?
yes, it's something I learned. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, what were you saying, Scott? Come you on. Know, the guitar sound that uh, Jeff had, had mentioned, and it's all over the albums as Bob Mould's signature. Uh, it, it's different from the, it's different from sort of the, uh, I want to say upbeat, but uh, kind of uh, buoyant punk riffs. It's more of an oppressive sort of sound, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it's helping yeah. to pull out uh, these these very detailed sketches from all these lyrics, and I hear it. I just you mentioned 1979. I mean, I hear it a lot, and especially the early Smashing Pumpkins, the way Billy Corgan's guitar sounds it's a, it's a direct influence uh, of bob mold there's a lot of it in those smashing pumpkin songs but you hear it in a song like uh say whatever uh from the mold songs from i think side three and yeah. that's one where again you have this 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 guitar sound that just matches this really kind of dark depressing set of lyrics of, of a character sketch uh, oh man I, I've, got, I've got thoughts on whatever but i'll get to those later yeah <laughs> doesn't get along with the outside world would rather be alone you know mom and dad mom and dad i'm sorry I'm not the son you wanted what could you expect that, that that's that's entirely uh what whatever is about and, and that guitar tone just helps to really wring every emotion out of that set of of molten lyrics um, what else? Uh, Pink Turns to Blue, uh, a heart song, one of the more uh, melodic sort of uh, songs. Really? Like, but, I, but I wouldn't call it a beat. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, no. The worst, it's about it's the drug worst addiction. possible thing ever. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the poppiest song ever written about your girlfriend dying from a heroin. It's right. like that scene in Breaking Bad, remember, when like Jesse Pinkman's girlfriend dies of a heroin overdose and like, you know, the guy just, uh, you know, Walter White stands there and lets it happen. It's yes. that horrible, horrible, horrible moment. And yeah, it, it's 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 not even like an upbeat sound. It's not a chipper sounding song, but it's definitely very poppy. Yes. The, the the melody is is not quite sweet, but it's certainly not matching the the sort of the guitar assault and of course the the rough rough set of lyrics there. Um, Turn on the news, another heart track from that's the fourth side, I think. One of yeah, the, that, that that's basically the climax. That's the right. climax of the album, right? Um, is that song? Man, is that a great one? If you could have an, an anthemic sort of sing along track on Zen Arcade, it's probably Turn on the News. Hart's kick drum is, is pounding on nearly every beat in the song while Mold's guitar is just crunchy all over the place. There's hand claps uh, over uh, one of Mold's just really brutally tough solos, this uh, you know, um, set of lyrics that sort of is, is commenting on, well, as, as the title indicates, uh, you know, turn off, turn, turn on the news and see what's what's going on. Uh, media. Wake, wake up and wake meet up. the real world. Yeah.
And so, I guess, to sum, to sum up, I should say, this is a, talk a little about the concept. And I think this is actually where they succeeded a little bit in, in that so many of the, the big albums, Quadrophenia or Tommy or, or Smile or albums like that, where you have this big concept and people trying to make a big statement, what happens? It gets labored over and people are fighting and it never gets finished or it's shelved for a while. They recorded this album, you know, what, like 40 hours to, to record, 40 hours to mix, and they got it out the door. I think that works to its advantage overall, too. Hey, the one place where it doesn't work to its advantage is where you can perceptibly hear Grant Hart slipping up on the beat of whatever. <laughs> like, they're like, you know, like, where it's one of the what are, one of the drum fills right at the beginning of the song. Like, he, he misses a beat, and I'm just like, you know, you could have gone back for one more day <laughs> to get that right. They were too, they were too kind of in love with the DIY kind of punk ethos, and, or who knows, maybe SST was like, you know, you have X right, amount of hours right. to do this and get it out the door. <laughs> but I anyways, suspect it was the latter. <laughs> It was probably the latter. And listen, I have so many things. I, I so many things I want to say about this album. But Andrew, please, you you go first. Uh, you're not gonna. I don't know if you're gonna like what I have to say here. Oh no! I, well then, I, I then I then then we're gonna just end the show right now. <laughs> done. Done. No. Uh, I, I first off, I like Zen Arcade. Uh, I listen to it. You know, at least once, start to finish. Every, I'd say, with every three months at least, it's it's in my regular rotation. But I do not think it is their best album. I I just Fair don't. Enough. I don't even think, and and this may be a bit controversial. I don't even think it is their best double album. <laughs> Well, you know what? There were people who were worrying that we weren't going to give enough space to warehouse songs and stories. So I'm glad that we have you on the team on that one. I actually think it's great, too. But yeah, I mean, do you, I mean, I don't want to, I guess, because like literally I will blather on and on and on like Bob Mould trying to steal time from Grant Hart on an album <laughs> uh, if you don't continue because I have so much to say. Well, I'll continue then. I, I think the, I think the, the thing about Zen Arcade that I, that I love is just the diversity of, of sounds on it. it. It's not just a pop record. It's not just a, a hardcore record. It's got a little bit of everything. I mean, it, it's got a 13-minute kind of jazz freakout, uh, improvisational. If, if, if we told you, the listener, that this double album ended, yeah, with a 13, 14 minute long jazz hardcore fusion instrumental. Uh, and would you believe us if we told you that, that this was also a highlight of their career? And this was actually all 14 minutes of it are incredibly listenable because, yep, that's Zen Arcade.
that's absolutely true. And, and it's, I think, one of the highlights of the album is, is reoccurring dreams. But I do think that for, uh, for people, uh, listeners who are a bit older, uh, who, who can't regress to that teenage mentality, it may be a bit less accessible than, uh, their, than their subsequent material, but I do not think that in any way takes away from its importance or from the fact that it's, it's a really, really good album. And, and I would say one of the best of the 80s, but I, I mean, I'm also someone who would put all of their work in, in you know, list of the best <laughs> albums of the 80s, so I'm a little biased. Right. I mean, I described this album right uh, when we began mentioning it as like, the most adolescent album of all time. And, you know, as, as Andrew pointed out, like it, it probably does help if you encounter it maybe when you're younger. Not because, like, oh, the music objectively isn't something that you can appreciate when you're older, but the intensity, the absolute intensity of these emotions that, that Mold and Heart are discussing is something that just will kill you if you hear it when you are at that age. There's a song on here. Again, one of the reasons why I appreciate that side, too, that I know Scott hates, uh, that, the hardcore <laughs> side. Um, there's a song here called I'll Never Forget You. And, of course, I just remember when I saw the title on the track, I thought, is this a love song? Well, clearly, I'll never forget you. And then you hear the lyrics, and it is one of the most brutal-sounding assaults melodic that the base of greg norton's bass that opens at that dum da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum you just know that you're in for a really bad ride and those lyrics i told you everything i knew about me you didn't listen to a word i said i spilled my guts and you just threw them away you never cared about me i only wanted to be your friend now it's gotta end and now i will i will i will never forget you I will never forgive you. That's why he'll never forget that person. It's because he confessed all of his darkest and most painful inner secrets to that person and hoped to have a connection and a bond with them. And they just, you know, like that Simpsons episode where <clears throat> Bart has the crush on the older girl and, and, and she instead wants to, like, you know, make out with Jimbo, the bully. And, and then Bart has this dark vision of her reaching right into his heart, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom style, ripping it out of his chest and then bank shotting it into a trash can saying you won't need this anymore that's the level of pain conveyed on that song and it is at a level of intensity that i, I guess i do have to say is, is if you have an adolescent identification with that if you found it at that time it will probably always hit you harder than if you just sort of academically go back and study it as an adult
thing about this album is that it, it contains multitudes. It isn't just like that really intense stuff. There are even even on the harder songs like Broken Home, Broken Heart, which is about like you know your parents are fighting. You don't you know I, he's, he's writing mold is writing from the you know, the external narrator's point of view. I look into your house, your parents fight. You don't know who's wrong or right, and uh, you know you cry yourself to sleep at night. Again, very on the nose. No subtlety here. This is about every kid who's ever had you know like you know that kind of you know horrible situation at their house. Um, but that melody. You know, especially the ascending bass line, that's a real melody in a hardcore song. Followed can immediately. We, yeah. Can we, can we take a moment? Well, talk, speaking of bass lines, can we take a moment to just appreciate Greg Norton here? Because I, I, I feel yeah. like he often gets neglected or were pushed to the side right or, there's or the heart mold be- it's the heart mold war and then they forget about him but but here's the thing i mean if if you listen to the earlier records including zen arcade the dude can play he's really good he he really just holds the holds the band together musically speaking and he's and he's really the, the ringo of the group if molden heart are lennon and mccartney no, I think that's absolutely right. He, there are songs where it, it, he under it doesn't it. work without the bass line. It, 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 it absolutely doesn't work. And of course, a classic example of that is what I think is maybe the best song on Zen Arcade. And I think quite possibly my favorite Husker Du song of all time is Chartered Trips. Charter trips is you know you know about the you know the guy he's, he's gonna hop on a boat go sail the world or maybe he's joining the army who knows something like that but that geometric riff you know that's all underpinned by Norton's bass and he plays with metronomic precision it's actually again Hart who sometimes gets sloppy on the drums <laughs> uh, but Norton never fumbles a note and on charter trips I just have to praise. The geometric perfection of that song. I, I, I mean, I, 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 I've, I know I've forced this song on you, Scott, before, but do you not see the genius of this musically, or am I, am I out on an island? particular i like uh an awful lot yes and, and there's uh there are a couple of times i know in the future <laughs> i think there's one in particular in the next album on new day rising that i really wanted to praise uh the bass work um and that's something that sometimes sometimes it's the mix right i mean sometimes 
this is not a terribly well produced uh, album uh, as as some of the stuff from this era is. Sometimes I think, mix... I think it probably costs forty bucks in studio time. <laughs> <like that. laughs> but yeah, I mean, sometimes the mix does not give you what you need from from the bass. It depends on, on the song, but I think it's a real constant, uh, real consistent way of of playing that that adds a lot to the songs. I guess the last thing I want to say about Zen Arcade, you know, and then you guys can add your final thoughts if you want, or maybe we can move on, is that. Uh, the, the sense of rising action from this album, the dynamism of the way the songs are arranged makes it one of my favorite double albums of all time. It's a double album. It fits on one CD. So it's, you know, it's only, I think, 70 minutes or so. Um, but it is so smart in that it puts its more difficult material not right up front. It opens, but the, you know, those first four songs are like something I learned today. Okay. Hardcore, but definitely melodic. You know, Broken Home, Never Talking to You, Charter Trips. Okay, you know, you can get in. It gives you a foothold, and then it starts to challenge you. Then on side two, it really, really puts you <laughs> through the ringer. All right. And then on the second LP, something magical happens. And this is, of course, kind of, you know, the signpost to where Husker Du would be going for the rest of their career. You, you have, you know, you know, somewhere, which is a straight up like optimistic pop song. It's a heart song. I think Mold got a songwriting credit on it, but I don't know. I mean, who knows? They, maybe they work together. But it, I always think of it as a Grant Hart song. Um, uh, but then you have uh, <laughs> newest industry is uh, again. You know, if it isn't chartered trips, this one also competes, uh, which is a straight up Echo and the Bunnymen style post punk. It opens with that very jangly, watery riff and the piano piano is the major underpinning of that rock track you have mold throwing down like the flaming hot metallic guitar licks uh in the background but really it's the percussion it's the bass and it's the piano which also works as a function of the rhythm section on that song which is i guess about almost like po what, what post-apocalyptic america there's been a nuclear war and we're you know we're all back living in huts or something like that doesn't even matter. But by the end of that song, when Bob is screaming, you will sign on for the newest industry. You will sign on. You will bounce around your room <laughs> like you're at the funny farm. It is that exciting and that motivating. Now we live in caves and huts and we don't have pay to then everyone is last thing i have to say again about this album is that whatever is just probably the most autobiographical song i feel that mold ever wrote about his childhood because yeah. like he's one of the things we haven't mentioned about the huskers is that uh you know it, it, for a trio uh two-thirds of the band were gay all right 
Grant, but not I think. the guy, but not the guy you would have thought. <laughs> yeah, okay, 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 exactly. That's the most. Oh gosh, you stole my joke, Andrew. Okay, because like you look at Greg Norton, with he has that that ridiculous Raleigh Fingers mustache, and he's bald. And he looks like a guy from the Village People. You'd be like, okay, well, that's the gay guy. Nope, he's just he's the straight guy. It's the other two guys, Bob and <laughs> and Grant, were gay. Uh, Grant's bisexual, and uh, and. You hear when Bob Mould screams that song, whatever you want, whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever you say. And he says, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry. I'm not the kid you wanted, but what could you expect? I've made my world of happiness to combat your neglect. Again, it's just so direct, but it's so clearly him talking about like that feeling of like, oh my gosh, you know, mm-hmm. like this is who I am. This is how I am. This is what I feel. And I know I'm disappointing you guys, but I have to be who I am. And that rage, that sadness, uh, it all comes out. And as Scott pointed out, those really dark guitars. But it is just, I guess, the perfect climax to an album that I consider, like, listen, the stupid Harry Krishna song, you didn't need that, right? Beyond that, I don't know if I'd take a single thing off of this. I don't know if I'd take a single second off of this. I love it as much as I love any record that I own in my collection. If anyone wants to add anything, uh, please do. Uh, if not, we'll just move on to you know a, a, a nice, brighter, shinier future, a new day rising. <laughs> uh, I say push forward. All right. Well, this is the follow up. They recorded it in '84, released it in early '85, and you know what do you do to follow up this giant ass double album? Well, you just record a kind of a much more modest one. Uh, this is the one I'm actually always most disappointed with. I think that the first half of this album is remarkable, every bit as good as Zen Arcade, and then I think it like it just falls to pieces near the end of it. Fifteen songs, the last four of them, I just why why did they do that? They should have gone back to making twenty minute records. But there's a lot of great music here, and again, I've talked for like four hours now in a row. So please, someone else take the wheel. You're not a big fan of How to Skin a Cat? No, or yeah, I'm not a big fan of What You Drinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't I can't say that you're wrong about that, but I do like New Day Rising quite a bit. Um, it might be it might be on the list of the two albums at the end of the episode. I'm still figuring that out. Uh, yeah, it's shorter, um, 40, 40 minutes or so. It's a single album, but the, the albums are coming fast and furious. When you look at you know the EPs and the full lengths, and, and, and you have two uh, writers in Hard and Mold who are operating near the top of their game uh i think four of the 15 tracks on new day rising are are heart tracks these are songs uh in the the lyrics are sort of short choppy fragmented uh you get those that sort of hardcore punk fast bites of sound 
through a lot of these tracks, they still don't lose that that sort of pop edge, that uh, melodic edge that has been brought to it. Uh, the, the production is about the same, which is to say, not good. And it's, we're just going to... No, it's, it's worse. Generally. I, think it, I, think, I think it's actually notably worse. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Andrew. I'm not sure if it's... It, it, might, it might be worse. Uh, it, it might not be worse. You know, I... Honestly, my opinion of, of how bad the production is depends on my mood when I put this this record on. <laughs> but what I what I will what I will say, <laughs> I actually have to say that it is true. Like the angrier you are, the more the less you're bothered by the production of these albums. Because yeah, if you're I, if you're if you're in a really crappy mood, yeah, you want to have something shredded your ears. <laughs> yeah, and but but what I will what I will say though is. If you want to know, uh, and, and I know we'll touch on this this album later, but if you really want to know what these songs are supposed to sound like, at least some of them, pick up The Living End, which is the Warner Brothers posthumous uh, live record that was recorded on the Huskers' last tour. And uh, New Day Rising, Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill, uh, Celebrated Summer is on there. I believe Terms of Psychic Warfare, Powerline, books about UFOs are on there. So mo- most of the New Day, most of the the non-throwaway songs on New Day Rising are on there. And it, it's just, it's so much different. It's so much better, I think, because you just hear them pouring out of the speakers, whereas on the, on the New Day Rising record, everything's a little muffled. I do think there are a lot of great songs here. Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill has a massive hook from uh, Heart in the Chorus. Uh, it's his song. And again, the way that's mixed, it's it's a little bit of a like a shouting into the madness. Uh, the vocals are, are below. Kind of a Steve Albini. Yeah. Uh, it's like Steve Albini mixed the album. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Celebrated Summer is just a fantastic song. And be, begin to see some of those uh, different instrumentations brought in. There's a twelve-string acoustic used in the bridge, used again right. at the at the very end of the song. It ends out of this very melancholy note. Uh, do you remember when that first snowflake we, fell? Was that your celebrated yeah. summer? Um, you know what, I really, what I really love about celebrated summer is that you can almost just see the way Bob Mould was writing it as he's writing it in the in the way the lyrics flow. So like, what's what's the first lyric? It's like love and hate were in the air, like pollen on a flower. And then he's like, well, okay, what else do I associate with? <laughs> Somewhere in the April months, they add another hour. So like, I now he's writing about daylight savings. <laughs> Except I, I, I want to point out that I think since like 2006 or 2007, that lyric is inaccurate because oh, daylight right. <laughs> no longer changes in April time. That's hilarious.
this is this is one of those songs though that I think the production uh, hurts. I, man, I, yeah, when yeah, I hear that riff, that riff actually would have sounded better on Zen Arcade. Like they had a better guitar tone there. Yeah. And here it's it's okay. The thing about Celebrated Summer is that riff is one of the best. A lot of people consider this the greatest Who's produced song of all time, by the way. And I, I can't blame them. It is but up the, there. But the way it's produced is shrill. It's shrill, and that is the sort of the rap that would always apply to them, and it bugs me here most of all their yeah. great songs. And, and for me, on Celebrated Summer, it's the drum sound, too, which is not unique to the song, but you, I, man, I just want a bigger drum sound, which we have on, on Sugar albums later, but you know, instead you get that very thin rat-a-tat-tat uh, for, from heart on, on Celebrated Summer. Uh, terms of Psychic Warfare, I think this is the one I wanted to, to highlight. That, 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 that bouncing bass line that is right up front that drives this song. I just really love uh, Terms of Psychic Warfare. Yes, I would guess that Jeff is not a fan of books about UFOs. I could be wrong. Okay. You know what? You're right, but you're yeah. not right for the why? reasons you might think. I'll tell you why. Okay, the reason you're not right is that I hate the production. That is a great pop song. Yes. I could, if they had done it like you know two years later on a Candy Apple Gray or you know you know a Warehouse album, it would have sounded so much better. But here again, it's just again, it's so it's all trebles, and I can't sometimes i actually like i you know what i hate the, the kind of music snob i hate the most is the person who's like oh i hated this new through master it was too hot and it gave me ear fatigue and like <laughs> oh i just can't listen to it because it's so hot oh, listen very, very few times where that complaint is absolutely justified is listening to these who's new albums and you get it on books about ufos same way you get it on celebrated summer but the song itself is good it's a it's a song. good song it's, it's so just fun badly produced it's you know it has the kind of good old rock and roll feel to it it's a very bouncy piano and a yeah. strong clear vocal from from heart on it too I, you know the, the one time and a woo in, into the break in the middle of the song i uh, uh i really like books about ufo i know I just want to, once again, I just want to point out that these songs, if you listen to the live album, they're a revelation. 
because everything that's bad about the production on this album is not there. And you can hear just, you can hear so much more and they're just amazing. They're amazing songs. And it's the reason that I will continue to evangelize for the living end because these, these songs are too good to be bottled up in, in this crappy cheap SST mandated production. And there is mm. a document of just how good they sound in a, in, in a live room. And because there's never going to be a reunion, it's, it's well, also I mean, the, the two thirds well, of the clearly. band has passed yeah. away. So it's not happening. No, that's not correct. Greg Norton's still alive. No, no. One he passed away. No, wait, both, both Greg Norton and Grant Hart have passed away. When did Greg Norton die? A when couple years that? ago. Uh, I, I, I'm, listen, I'm listen. Gonna... I'm going to tell you this right now. If if I look it up and I find out that I was wrong about that, Here, I'm going to feel very I'm, dumb. I'm looking because we got to get a death correct on the show. Uh, Greg Norton. Well, you know is what? Still oh, oh my gosh. Okay. You know what? We're going to have to omit this one because uh, you're right. I thought he had passed away too, but no, he has not. Uh, he is, apo- he is... Apologies to you, Andrew. A- apologize to Greg Norton. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna okay. Maybe we have to leave this in actually because it's too funny. I, I will I will call Greg and, and I will say you know what you should really start up that restaurant again. Uh, by the way, for those who don't know, after Husker Du disbanded, Greg Norton he, he, he played in a couple of groups for a while, but then he actually went into the restaurant business and was a very successful restaurant tour of all things. Right, guy just like you know making food for people and it worked <laughs> it was wonderful anyways so i'm sorry for interrupting you andrew i was dumb where, where was i oh yeah i, I was evangelizing the, for the living end and there's yeah, not right. going to be there's not going to be a reunion uh and this band i think is just too important and too good for people to ignore the the one uh, extant official document of what a husker do show sounded like mm-hmm because every time, every time I, I pop that in, and it's and it's one, and it's probably the Husker Du album I listen to the most, just because hmm. I can close my eyes and I can put myself in in the room, and I can just I can almost just imagine what it was like, and because of circumstances, it's something that will never actually happen, so I need to be able to live in my imagination, although I've been to many a Bob Mould show, and they are always amazing. But the it's just, it's an escape. It's it's an escape record for me, because it, lets, it takes me back in time to 1987, uh, and me i'm a i'm a five-year-old uh that has somehow snuck into a into a husker do show hmm. uh, and instead of being confused or wondering where my parents are i'm listening <laughs> to them
I actually, I totally understand it. Now, when we did our pre-show notes, I said, like, yeah, you know, maybe we don't need to talk much about The Living End. It's, it's a nice live album, but is it that notable? And uh, Andrew was like, hell no, we have to talk about this record. It is a very good record. It was released long after they had broken up, I think 1994 or something like that. But it, yeah. it, re- it really is an excellent document. Um, the last thing I'll say about New Day Rising is, is that there are two songs there that, that have always amused me to no end. The first of them is Folklore. I don't know if you guys are a big fan of that one, but I love it because, again, you know, you, you know, it starts off as like, you know, a big angry song. Like, you know, women sued the stars and stripes and the men, they fought the wars. Bob Mould screaming about history. And then it goes into that really kind of almost sing-songy chorus. A lesson that I learned in a history book. A lesson that I learned in a history book. Uh, and you realize that he is absolutely now committing to writing pop music, even though the sound is still hardcore. Big, angry guitars. But the mode is pop and rock. And there's no better confirmation of that than the song that comes right before it, which I think, you know, okay, Celebrated Summer is one of the great Who's Could Do Us songs, right? But I actually, like, I apologize even more. And I like it because I... what you should tell Greg Norton when when you call him. (laughs) I will will tell him. I tell him as I apologize. But, man, what I love about it is it's, it's mold writing about, like, just, you know, the absolute most boring sort of everyday argument that you have with your partner, your girlfriend, your wife, your boyfriend, your husband, whatever, uh, you know, you know, all these crazy mixed up lies floating all around, you know, and again, is it something I said when I lost my mind, my temper too quick, it makes me blind. And then he just writes the pop chorus for the ages. I apologize. And then boop a jump, boop a jump, boop a jump, boop a jump. He is now at this point, clearly throwing off with the surly shackles of their you know, early hardcore scene and all that. And anybody who ever complained like, oh, they sold out when they went to Warner Brothers and made that later stuff. It's like you weren't paying attention. I Apologize is a straight-up pop rocker. It's played heavy, it's played hard, and it's played fast. But it is, it is completely committed to that great chorus and that great melody. And, you know, when he says, I'm said, I'm sorry. And then Grant in the background says, said, I'm sorry. They're, they're, they're duetting. They're trading vocals on a pop riff. I love it so much. It was the moment where I realized that, oh, man, these guys were really in it for the long haul. And it wasn't just an accident. Zen Arcade wasn't an accident. They really knew what they were doing.
after uh, uh, New Day Rising, they what they wrestle because uh, the, the label was sticking them with Spots, the producer, right? So they eventually grab some power, or at least convince them to let them produce the next album themselves. And that's Flip Your Wig, uh, released in 1985, September of 1985. And look, I just think it's very... If, if you, like me, are listening through the uh, uh, Do catalog and come on to Flip Your Wig, it's going to be a weird experience to hear properly recorded vocals on a Do album. But they're here on Flip Your Wig. It's cleaner, and it's brighter, and it's not perfect, but it sounds better uh, than, than the past albums, and especially uh, New Day Rising. This is, um, uh, you know, they're still writing and playing the, in the same mode. I think I would say, that, you know, they're kind of refining what they do. Bold is is writing songs uh, on on Flip Your Wig that are a, a little more, as Jeff said, he's sort of letting down the the anger a little bit. And, and but so they're still intense. They're still intense, but they're a little more accessible. Uh, I think that really starts on on Flip Your Wig. This is a good album. It, it has one of my favorite mold songs, which is which is games and oh uh, yes, you know, game, uh, uh, Jeff had had highlighted this, highlighted this on on Twitter leading up to the episode. Man, is games a great mold song? Uh, it's going to end up on my list at the end of the show. Just a killer, killer riff uh, from Mold. A great middle eight. His vocals are again are crisper and clearer. You you can begin to understand, and, and he goes back and forth even at this point between. Uh, you know, how he wants to present his, his vocals. If he's a little more angry, a little more screaming, or a little clearer and easier to I just want, I just want to say, like, the thing about games, in the vocals, first of all, it's one of the best lyrics that he, I think he'll he'll ever write. It's one of the best things, you know, talking about, I, you know, I could be proud of the things I have done, pretend I don't have to try to be someone. Um, it's, a, it's a really existential dilemma song, but the way he lashes that melody to that giant riff, mm-hmm. I think the way, I, the way I wrote about it on Twitter is it's like you're riding on the back of a sea serpent, <laughs> because it goes up and down and up and down and up and down but it is so earned i normally don't like it when melody lines follow uh, the guitar riffs and songs because i feel like it's lazy but you know the guitar should be an accompaniment vocals or something like that but now on this one it's just it's so wonderful interesting i i listening to you guys talk about games because i would say that there's a song on that there's a mold song on this album that that outmatches it and it's divide and conquer Hmm. and i mean it's like the the guy's a prophet this was released 
when in in 1985 listen to these lyrics We'll invent some new computers, link up the global village, and get AP UPI Reuters to tell everybody news news. The guy's a prophet. I mean, that's describing the, the modern world right right there in issue with divide and conquer is it's the same like phrase the same musical phrase for the entire song until the end when they get into the divide and conquer divide and conquer then that climax is worth it but i feel like you know it's musically it's more repetitious than i might otherwise like but of course everyone else this is one of by the way if you if who's could do fans will, will now riot and uh you know hang me in effigy outside my apartment because like, this is one of the most lo- beloved songs of their career you know by the way scott i completely cut you off so like what were you <laughs> gonna say other than that well I, I think i did too i'm sorry that's okay yeah, we, we, take tur- we take turns on the show uh, the that's individual moments on on flip your wig are, are just outstanding i mentioned the songs that i mentioned plus we haven't even talked about two other uh, this is truly where i first appreciated mold's songwriting ability and, and whether it's it's me uh, finally understanding what he's doing or or him sort of evolving as as who's could do moves on this is the first time i'd really point to like multiple mold songs and say man that that's good and that hook and this I mean, makes no sense at all. Makes no sense at all. It's just a great fusion of, of, of sort of the hardcore punk and, and, and the pop leanings. I, yeah. I think it's one of Mold's best melodies in the chorus. It makes no sense at all, of course, too. And, and again, here he's he's singing. He's not shredding. You know, he's not shredding his throat with, with the vocals. And I hate paper at all, which is another Mold song. Um, I, I kept thinking about eight days a week when listening to Hate Paper Doll. It's got the same, you know, eight, yeah, eight days, days a, week, a week. Hate Paper Doll. The middle eight, right. Thank you all, now, cut from the sack. And, and that's well, not to say. Well the, well, the album title itself, I think, is is an homage to the Beatles. Oh, sure. Think, yeah. You know, you um, know, like Beetle wigs and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, and the, and the title track is is almost a monkey song. 
it's deceptively catchy. Flip your wig that that, that song is, and the one uh, I mentioned at least one heart song, song and uh, maybe green eyes. green eyes. Yeah, oh green eyes God. just green has eyes. a. Best song ever written about a cat. <laughs> it's wait, a, wait, wait, wait. That's a cat? I believe it was written about his cat, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, the funny thing about Green Eyes is that I, I think that's just an incredible – okay, I actually have to disagree with Scott when he says that he thinks that the vocals are, are better recorded on this album than in the early ones. I think it's the opposite. It's like as they finally got their instrumental ensemble to sound good and professional and upfront and clear and not maybe as grating as it sometimes could be in the past, uh, they oftentimes decided to just bury the vocals in needless and endless echo. And there's no greater example of that than Green Eyes. Green Eyes. It, it, it does You're, suffer from the Steve Albini effect. Yeah, it's. It feels like almost like Grant Hart is maybe he he realized he was singing a song about a house cat, and so he was embarrassed <laughs> because the song's vocals are buried so far back in the mix, and it almost feels like it's it's like it's not fully mixed. Like it it, it, it there you know this is, this is just something that was a preliminary one that went out on the final album, but the song itself, that riff, that riff is just just remarkable and it is hypnotic i do think it is one of the you know the finest songs on the album You have this tradition of completely interrupting Scott in the middle of his thoughts. No, but see, now I'm done. So, <laughs> ah, well, well, I mean, uh, I, I'll, I'll, inter I'll interrupt. Uh, we, <coughs> sure. we were talking about makes no sense at all. I, I just want to point out that the B side for the makes no sense at all single the, is also one of the greatest covers. In, the Mary in Tyler Moore theme song. Love is all around is the name of the song. Give it the respect it deserves, please. Listen, I mean, uh, uh, my wife and I lived in, in Minneapolis for a while. We we have uh, posed for many a photo outside the Mary Tyler Moore statue <laughs> that is that is down, you know, uh, you know, in, in the downtown area. And it, it's uh, it's just uh, it was hilarious when I finally put two and two together and realized this song was because you know because when I was born in 1980, I never watched the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, but then all of a sudden, love is all around, and then I heard. Thing. I was like, wait, wait, is that the Husker Do song? No, 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 no. The Husker Do song is that song. It is a pretty fun little track. I mean, I'll, I'll, by the way, uh, the last thing I'll say about Flip Your Wig is that, uh, you know, my, Chris, my critique of it is that it, uh, 
it falls apart at the end of the album in the same way that I've always felt that New Day Rising falls apart at the end of the album. Like, I think somebody even joked with me on Twitter. It's like they they were waiting for my 10-minute long disquisition on the merits of the baby song. Um, uh, or, <laughs> yeah, which is it's just literally, you know, I don't know why. It was like Hart's excuse to get a songwriting credit on the it's, record. It's, a, it's an odd one, uh, although the back half of the record... I'd say Flexible Flyer and Keep Hanging on Standout. Those are both good songs, but the last two songs, it collapses. The Wit and the Wisdom is just like some instrumental track. Goes nowhere, does nothing. Same with Don't Know Yet. There's just nothing there, and I don't understand why they felt the need to put them on. These people were well acquainted with the idea of releasing shorter albums, and yet they threw extra stuff on. I don't understand the creative choices that went into it. I've never read Bob Mould's autobiography. Maybe he explains it there. But uh, it's always been something that's sort of vaguely disappointing. Uh, I guess the other thing to say is that this is the end of the band's SST years. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they finally leave the album. They were actually debating whether this one would be on SST or not. Once they got creative control over the production, they they, they agreed to it. Uh, But for their next one, they sold out. This is the I think not the first, or if not the first, but close. I think the the replacements did it first. The replacements again. Another Tim was eighty. 85 so it would have been so, a year yeah. before i think right so the replacements sold out to the big labels first but of course the replacements were incapable of selling out because they were incapable <laughs> of staying sober uh meanwhile the huskers also went to warner brothers because uh, this is always thought of as like if you're going to sign to a major label then they're the artist friendly label and they came out a year later uh, with an album called candy apple gray release for Warner Brothers and it is I think by fans back in the day was always treated as a big disappointment and I wasn't a fan back in the day I wasn't some sort of uh, hardcore or punk tribalist underground kind of indie scene tribalist I don't have any of those allegiances. I don't have any reason to feel betrayed by my bands. (laughs) Hey, listen, I think R.E.M.'s Green and Out of Time and Automatic for the People are just as good as Murmur and Reckoning. Uh, So I don't understand... I don't understand why people dislike this album. I went back and listened to it recently for the first time in several years, and I was like, I, I was actually having trouble finding the flaw with it. I think this is one of their two greatest records. 
about everything except the two greatest records i'm not quite sure but that's fine <laughs> but but i think that the strength the strength of this record is there's not a bad song on it there's just not a, there's not a throwaway song on right it, it doesn't it there's, doesn't there's no baby that... there's no baby song right where it's just like for 45 seconds well i mean how do you top the baby song you know, another baby song. You, you can't do that. I but don't know. Well, it's, I'm it's, just saying it will be making my top five at the end of the show. That, fair enough. But uh, it's but but Candy Apple Gray, the, the first track on it, uh, Crystal. Uh, it, it opens with this caustic guitar riff. It's almost like uh, almost like they're saying, "Look, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We're still loud. We still got the same sound." Uh, we're just making more money. Here's the music. Now listen to it. And it's, I would say Crystal's not one of the best tracks on the album, but it's a, it's a statement. And then, of course, it, the next track on, on the album is uh, one of, I think, Grant Hart's best songs, which is Don't Want to Know If You're Lonely, which, as I explained earlier, is the song that indirectly got me into a screw in the first place. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that, that that what people held against Candy Apple Gray is sort of the midsection of this album, where you have a combination of like Hart writes these two very poppy songs, Sorry Somehow and Dead Set on Destruction. I think, I think, I think Sorry, Sorry Somehow is great. That's Sorry my favorite somehow. song of the album. I, it's Sorry Somehow, exactly. I mean, I, I actually remember once when I first heard it, it was lightweight, and then I went back and listened to it again. I was like, no, what 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 problem could I have ever had with this song? It's <laughs> awesome. And then bookended those songs bookend those two big acoustic Bob Mold ballads, which is definitely where he would be going after Who's Could Do. Uh, but it was not where the band necessarily was going up until this point, too far down. And this again just competes for my favorite Who's Could Do song of all time. I think that hardly getting over it 
is one of the finest moments the band ever had. It's long. It's six minutes long. And it's not six minutes long because it's a jazz fusion hardcore improvisation or anything like that. It's six minutes long because it's this very slow, ruminative, shuffling, acoustic ballad uh, where the the pain of it, it comes from the fact that he starts like – he starts it as a third-person narration. He's hardly getting over it. He's hardly getting over it. But, but by the end, I think he just gives that up. And he's like, I'm hardly getting over it. And you realize he's writing about himself. He's, he, he, there, there's this pain that he has not gotten past. And it's, it's the piano and the keyboards in the background that make it so nagging and impossible to take away from your mind. The dun, 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 dun. It's a brilliant little simple simple touch that turns a song that could have just kind of been an acoustic dirge into something that uh, actually is intensely misty and atmospheric. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's what I mean when I try to tell people, okay, well, you think you felt pride. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, well, this band is not for me. It's like, well, the same guy who wrote that song wrote Hardly Getting Over It. <laughs> same three guys produced it and played it. That's them that's the span of music, the span of time that Who's Could You traveled in two years. Say and and like Jeff, I don't I don't, you know I'm not I'm not looking at this as a sellout or anything along those lines. You know when I listen to this, I I, I do hear what I would say is a a clear if not terribly significant drop in the in the quality of the songwriting. So not I mean I think hardly getting over it is fantastic. I echo everything hmm. Jeff just said about it, but I I'm not sure the songwriting is quite as sharp as it has been in the past few albums, and they've been cranking them out, uh, you know, in, in, in two, three years prior to Candy Apple Gray, so I don't know if that should be terribly surprising if that's, if that's the case. Um, highlights, you know, Sorry Somehow, as I mentioned, is my favorite song of the album. I think Hardly Getting Over It is, is fantastic. Um, Dead Set on Destruction, which is a, a heart song. You know, that's, that's one of those songs for the title. If this were from an era three years prior, you would know exactly what it would sound like. Uh, and on Candy Apple Gray, it's not nope. quite the killer destroyer <laughs> I, 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 song I think, that you might think it is. I think the thing about, about Dead Set on Destruction, it's the same thing as Crystal, whereas I guess in a, in a way they might have been like trying a little too hard to to prove to their fans that they hadn't sold out. Right. 
but I mean, it's it's a perfectly service, serviceable song. Right. Uh, I just I just think it falls into that sort of gratuitously uh, gratuitously grungy, for lack of a better word. I think that's the case with a number of songs on Candy Apple Grade. They're fine. They're, they're, they're pretty good. But I, I'm not sure I would put any of them, um, maybe hardly getting over it. I don't know if I'd put any of them really uh, saying this is one of the best Who's Could Do songs that Mold's written or one of the best Who's Could Do songs that Hart has written. I don't know if there's a, a I mean, like, the, 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 the problem is that they wrote so many fantastic yes. songs. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, it's like there's this True. The, the song that ends this album, All This I've Done For You, I adore Adore that song. That is that is that is the classic. The classic Hooskers, hard rock, but with melodic touches. Song. That's everything you want from this band. Uh, and yet, you know, it's not going to make my top five at the end. Uh, but it, it, not for any reason, uh, you know, that would reflect poorly upon it. It's a fantastic song. It's just that they've written so many other great songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the thing is, like, there's, there's only one song on this album that I just don't really care for, and that would be, uh, what is it, Eiffel Tower High. I think other people like it, and I don't much care for it. Um, but there's there's one that, that, that is weird. I don't know what you guys think of that weird Grant Hart one, No Promise Have I Made. It's a, it's a, it's a penultimate song on the album where it's this uh, interesting fusion. It, it, it's a piano ballad, yeah. but he also plays these incredibly hot cymbals yes. and hi-hats on it. Yeah. So you have all these like rising like crescendos. It's an interesting experiment that I sometimes think works and then I sometimes think is utterly ridiculous. I, I, I see what you're saying there, but I think I still think it's a great song. Uh, it's yeah. It's it's not. It, I think it might have been a little better, you know, maybe one one track before or a couple tracks before, mm-hmm. along going going with too far down and hardly getting over it. But it it's it's still just the, the lyrics. I think are are fantastic, and I love the way that it just kind of builds and builds and builds over over the course of the song. Right, right, I, and and I, I have to say, like, just the idea of like, you know. We, Hart's a drummer, right? So obviously it would have occurred to him to like, I'm writing this song on a piano, but I should put my actual natural instrument in here too. <laughs> and so like, how does he do it? Instead of giving it a drum beat, it's just all these symbols, just, you know, these, these crazy, super, you know, mic'd really hot crescendos on the song. 
uh, and it does work. I think also I've always kind of had a problem with the awkward syntax of the title. No promise have I made. It's like, like what are you? Are you a character out of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility or something <laughs> like that? No, I mean it sounds a little bit stilted, but it is. As I said, I waver. Is this a great song or is this a ridiculous song? Catch me at a different time and I'll probably tell you different. Well, I can tell you set your expectations high. Well, now I'm faced up to you facing me betrayed. Oh, oh, no promise have I made. And that would lead us to the uh, well, I mean, the end of the band and the last album. Another double album, and one that perhaps we'll let Andrew take a swing at first because he made the uh, the, the, the bold uh, statement earlier, at least uh, Jeff's years, that uh, the best double album in the uh, Husker Du career is not, is not Zen Arcade, but is this one, Warehouse. Uh, the final album, what's it, 20, 21 songs? It's a lengthy one, and uh, this is the one where uh, the, the album is structured almost like a, a face-off between Bob Mould and, and Hart because it's, it's you know what it, one it, after it, the it, other. You remember the Michael Jackson video for Beat It? Yeah. Like where, where, where the two guys, the gang leaders, like, like, like tie themselves together with yes. their arms and bandanas and then hold knives in the other hand? This is that. It's like every song alternates. <laughs> it's just like every song all just like it's war. Of course, it's M- totally war. Mold has fifty five percent, so there is one back to back in which mold mold back to back. But other than that, it's like this this attempt to one up each other uh, through a warehouse going back to back. Andrew, go ahead. Well, it's uh, you know go, playing off of that metaphor. An- another one you could use would be it's the dance off scene from Zoolander. It's two master songwriters at their at the peak of their creative powers so far trying every bit as hard as the other to outdo each other. And it's just punching each other in the face over and over again with these fantastic songs. At least I think they're fantastic. These important years, I would say is one of, one of Bomb Mold's best songs and one of the best album openers in, in the entire history canon of, of, of all of their albums. Chastity, prudence, and hope is an, is another one. Just it follows 
right after this great Molt song, you have another great Heart song. And then you have Standing in the Rain, fantastic. Heart, Back from Somewhere, Mold, Ice Cold Ice. And it just goes on and on and on, and it does not let up for two LPs worth of music. It's it's just this fire hose of songwriting, and that's exactly it's right. Just, it's, it's a fire it's, hose, right? It's it's why it's just it's a masterclass in songwriting. It's I can't think of enough metaphors for it. I think not a bad song and and that's you know it's it's who's do at its finest the you know competitive juices flowing between the two songwriters and the band is tight although uh in bob mold's autobiography he said that he and grant hart recut some of greg norton's bass parts mm-hmm. on the album but either way it's it's just I mean, I can't think of enough good things to say about this record. They're just at the top of their game. I think the thing about uh, Warehouse, by the way, let's just take a brief moment to remark about the work pace of this band. <laughs> this nineteen eighty, I talk about this like when we, we did the Beach Boys episode, right? They're putting out like three albums a year, and it's just like, holy Christ, how can people do this? This is actually in nineteen. 19- the mid nineteen eighties, something almost equivalent. You know, Zen Arcade comes out what it was like mid eighty four, and they do two albums in nineteen eighty five, a double album in nineteen eighty four, two albums, which is I guess a double album in its own way in nineteen eighty five, and then an album in nineteen eighty six, and another double album in nineteen eighty seven. I don't know how they didn't. Well, I guess I do know how they. I was going to say I didn't know how they blew out, but they actually did blow out. This is this is the end of the road for the Hooskers. But this amazing, you I guess competitiveness. It started as friendship and it ended in bitterness. Um, but you, I I love the way that Andrew describes you know them as like it, you're just trading blows. You're getting punched in the face. You know, it's funny like. The drinking from a fire hose metaphor in particular <laughs> works so well for this because you're right. There isn't a single song on this album, just like I would actually have said about Candy Apple Gripe. There isn't a single song on that album or this album that I would say is like less than worthy. They were clearly trying to give their best and their all, not only to the record label and to the fans and to get commercial success, even though, of course, that was never destined to be, uh, but also just trying to you know, as you know, spit back at one another. My favorite song on this record actually is just like a random one Somewhere located on the second album, it's called It's Not Peculiar.
got it's got another one of those great rat-a-tat-tat-tat kind of guitar riffs from Bob Mould. And, you know, why would I choose that versus, I don't know, Turn It Around, which is also great, or Ice Cold Ice, or You Live Alone, or Charity, Chastity, Prudence, and Hope? I don't know. And that's the problem, I think, that people have always had in wrapping their brains around warehouse songs and stories, is that it's actually consistent to its own detriment. Are no throwaway tracks, small tracks, little squibs, or things that you know can you serve as an interlude or a way to sort of, I don't know, cabin off one side from another side, kind of define the contours of a record that help you get your head around it. You know, like the way Exile on Main Street will throw these like little small, like you know, background kind of numbers in between the major star turns. Everything on this album feels like it was like a major statement and of course the funny thing about it is that they feel like they were a major statement written by one guy in the band to piss off the other guy in the <laughs> band to say like i can write a better song than you can there's uh, well first of all this is really good and it's better than i would have expected from a band that was apparently very close to falling apart by this point and, and a band that had churned out so much material in, in the past couple of years um, there really is this back and forth feel when these songs come at you, you know, one right after the other, one heart, one mold, right? And um, and the and the quality is fairly high throughout. Uh, I think it, it fades just a little on the on the second on the second LP, uh, you know, the second disc of, of of Warehouse, but through that first first half for sure, super strong. Something like "Could You Be the One" uh, clearly yeah. is pointing like right to what was going to be happening with 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 Sugar in, in a couple of years uh, down the road. That's kind of that bigger melodic sound uh, that would be in vogue by that point, and also would be uh, highlighted by by Molt songwriting. Uh, uh, she floated away is the heart track on here that I just love a lot. Uh, almost a '60s kind of psychedelic feel latched onto uh, this Husker Du sort of template with, uh, with with the way that they create songs. It's just a fun, well executed song. <laughs> Jeff already mentioned it's not peculiar, which uh, I like an awful lot. 
the final song of the final side. You can live at you home. You live at home. Yeah. Uh, what a weird and wonderful close to this album, and and and, and certainly reads as if it's a shot from heart to mold. A very bitter sort of uh, set of lyrics. Spiraling sections. There's some acoustic uh, among the loudness of it. This marching. I don't know if it's a synth bass line or what. What is there? But man, it is. It is just a, a wonderful, wonderful way to close out this this double album. Uh, one of my favorite moments from from Heart to to close their their career. In fact. sense that for a band that was so consistent from album to album uh, in their career, they closed with a double album with 20 plus songs in which consistency is, you know, Jeff's biggest complaint about it, in effect. Yeah, it isn't, isn't it weird, though, that like you you listen to a record like this and you're like, okay, that's a good song. And then you listen to the next one and it's like, oh shit, that's a good song. That's a good song. That's a good song. That's a good song. And they're all really really good to the point where it almost because of the style of the band and I think this is something that Bob Mould felt a little bit liberated from after Husker Du broke up uh, the trio sound and style of the band did limit them in certain ways there was always going to be sort of like a, a, a top ceiling on the kind of approach they could bring to something uh, and without that Mould was free to do a bunch of other stuff later but with this, I get something like oh, "Ice Cold Ice" or even "Mold" supporting Grant Hart wonderfully on a one, one of the uh, you know fayest and silliest sounding titles of all time. But "Charity, Chastity, Prudence, and Hope," boy, that actually is my favorite Grant Hart song on the album. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, it, it, again, it, it, it sounds like an XTC title. I was going to say, actually, I was going to say, a "Guided by Voices" <laughs> album title. But you know that is funny. It, it, I've always associated Warehouse with the sort of like, oh, this feels like their you know their XTC English settlement. I guess yeah, guided by voices, B thousand kind of a thing that also works. That's what happens when 
I guess the, the intensity within the group is just ramped up so much that all they're doing is like, what's what's the closest thing to a throwaway track on this album? I'm trying to think of what it might be. Is it actual condition? But I like that. It's a rockabilly shuffle. You know, too much spice. That's also a good song. I will never have this album doesn't have the focus or the intensity maybe the narrative intensity or the sequencing intensity of a, of a record like Zen Arcade. So I will never rank it as highly as Zen Arcade, but I, I can't say anything bad about it. And I bought it. I remember buying it, <laughs> looking at that horrible, cheap looking cover. Cause man, it looked like it was just, you know, second rate, like kind of a cover art. I've never liked, you know, what, 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 when I first saw it, I, I honestly thought it was a, you know, a B side compilation sort of post-career release yeah that's what yeah. It, that's what the I, cover yeah, cause it's, it's called warehouse right yeah. songs and stories like right. here's a bunch of <laughs> off cuttings no right no i totally understand them and i like the album art but i bought of i bought it convinced primed to think it would be inferior it's their last album before the breakup it's you know bad album art uh it's you know 21 songs long People have not really been kind to it in their critical reviews in the past. Uh, but that could, yeah, people were wrong. That's exactly right. People were wrong. Andrew, is there anything else you want to say about this one, please? Before we uh, try to maybe have a little bit to say about sort of the afterlife of the Hooskers. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think I think I've, I've said enough. Um, it's this is I, their most underrated album, and like I said about some of the ones on New Day Rising. The reproductions on, or not reproductions, the the versions of the song on the living end that mm-hmm. exist for this album are just also top notch. And that the ice cold ice, this, there's that live version of ice cold ice on the living end that I think is actually just absolutely fantastic, and it's it's even better than the album one, which is good. Yep, it's it just the 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 living end I think is is essential because it, it lets people hear what they sounded like, as I said earlier, and. And just it escapes some of the production problems. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess here's the thing. We haven't really talked about what brought this band to an end. Of course, what brought this band to an end was the... Heroin. Ten- <laughs> well, well it, was, it was heroin and competitiveness. It's a combination of the two, right? So obviously... Two things that often go together. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, two two great flavors that go even better together, right? So, like, yeah, so Grant Hart and Bob Mould uh, fighting about the songwriting credits. I made the joke at the beginning of the episode. Mould famously sort of insisted to Hart that, like, you'll never get more than 45% of the songs on any Who's Do album. Uh, I guess that was his way of asserting that he was the most important member of the band, the 55% to 45% member. But, of course, there was a, the much bigger issue, really, was Grant Hart. And the fact that he had, I think, somewhere around the, the, the flip your wig or the candy apple gray era, uh, gotten addicted to heroin. And uh, as you know, as people will tell you, the, getting addicted to heroin is a bad idea, <laughs> uh, uh, even even if your name is Keith Richards. Because, man, some of those mid-70s Stones albums really suffer, uh, but were particularly bad for heart. He was still obviously able of writing a lot of songs. Uh, he's very capable, but the drug addictions and the issues that surrounded it, I think, were the the breaking point for Mold, who I think also at that point kind of had gotten sick of being stuck in the trio format. He wanted to, you know, bring in whoever he wanted to play with, you know, do a, you know, a four piece band. Oh, a whole four people. Well, well there's a there's another 
there's another part of this that, um, that doesn't exactly have to do with uh, with anything Grant Hart did. Uh, the Huskers the had a manager named mm-hmm. David Savoy. Right. And right before their last tour, uh, David Savoy uh, walked onto a bridge in Minneapolis and jumped off of it onto a frozen riverbed. Uh, and this... Uh, did not go over well with with the band obviously he was a he was a fan who would become a friend who would become their manager and now he's dead and it kind of shook everyone and then they went on their on their last tour and their last tour they started it just playing the whole warehouse album front to back and that didn't go over great <laughs> uh People and, like I want to hear. I want to hear chartered trips. Give me celebrated summer. You know, right? And and so they started playing a, a more varied set list, and and that's what you hear on on the living end. But at, at one at one point on the in the the last days of the tour, uh, Grant Hart had a bottle of methadone that I guess cracked and leaked into a sink or something, and they. Uh, they played this show in Columbia, Missouri at a club called the Blue Note, and he was like struggling to stay awake and it was just awful. So they canceled the rest, the rest of their shows or the next few shows and they drove back uh, to the Twin Cities. And uh, in Mold's autobiography, he recounts the story where uh, he and Greg Norton and Grant Hart uh, had a meeting in Grant Hart's parents' kitchen. And I think it was uh, Mrs. Hart who said to them, well, can't you guys just uh, play on weekends or something? <laughs> and, at, and at that point, he was, you know, F- this, I'm out. And that was the end of Husker Du. Yeah, I, you know, you can't really live this life part time. <laughs> and that was something that Mold was not willing to do. Um, of course, what that leads us to is sort of the afterlife of Husker Du. And by the way, the band's afterlife in in terms of the way that they all related to one another has been notoriously better. It's one of the kind of the sadder stories of the rock world. They did not get along. I think Mold and Hart always felt an enormous resentment towards one another. Maybe because they thought like, oh, we broke up such a good thing uh, and, you know, now we aren't as big as we could have been or you know who knows who who can who can ever know really the kinds of resentments that will come to come to bear in a relationship where you've been like you know basically living on top of another guy for the last like you know seven ten years um they didn't even talk no 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 compilations no merchandise no gear you can't they never even until recently they, they, until, they, recently. until recently there is, a, there is a merchandise website now that uh molden hart did reunite once once in two, on i stage. think it was for the soul asylum guy the bassist right he was having Car- a caller carl muller uh, right yep. and uh they they played uh, "Never Talking to You Again" and "Hardly Getting Over It," which were, I, I think, very symbolic choices, right? <laughs> right, um, and and that was arranged through through their lawyers or something, um, and uh, but apparently they started speaking again uh, in you know uh, later 
you know, later on and in, in more recent years up and they were they were speaking again when uh, Grant Hart passed away a few years ago. Right. And that was actually how we got that Savage Young Do boxed set, which God thank God for that, because what a wonderful, wonderful gift it was to fans. Um but I guess the thing that, that we want to talk about here before the end of the show is that, well, there's like a 24 CD, a 24 album uh, uh, solo career of Bob Moulds that we, we, we uh, guess I feel sort of semi-obligated to deal with. Uh, okay, so, so buckle in for the next five hours <laughs> as we go through all 24 of those albums. No, It's going to be a two-man show at that point. <laughs> yeah, there's no way that anyone humanly can do hey, that. I'm game. Anytime. I, I'm I, you know, listen. I, I love a lot of Bob Mould solo stuff, but I think that I think the thing that makes the most sense to do in this context is to first of all acknowledge the fact for fans. Listen, you, if you're first of all, if you are a Hootsker Do fan, and for some reason you don't know Bob Mould's solo material, then what the hell are you doing, buddy? I'm going to knock you on the head and tell you to go get his first two solo albums, go get his Sugar albums for crying out loud. Do it now. For the rest of you. Who maybe even didn't know about this band until we did this show. I have to say that the, one of the wonderful things about Mold's solo career is that it isn't like, you know, say Paul Westerberg's solo career, which has its ups <laughs> and it has its downs, but you know, it's not the replacements, right? All right, and, and, and even say Lou Reed. Lou Reed has some really great solo albums, but it sure as heck ain't the Velvet Underground. Bob Mould's solo career is very much, and in very many ways, a true continuation of the best of what you think you liked about late period Husker Du. It is there. And I think it starts with, the, with that first solo album. And I, and I wanted to know if uh, you guys had any particular thoughts. I don't know. You know Scott, I'm assuming that you probably haven't you know, explored the depths of the Bob Mould solo uh, output the way that, that maybe me and Andrew have. But, man, Workbook... That is just a great album. It's an acoustic album. It feels like a sequel to like Too Far Down and Hardly Getting Over It. So Workbook, I, I don't know where I read this, but I read it somewhere. Uh, might have been on Pitchfork or, or some such uh, site that does reviews that uh, Sunspots, the opening to Workbook, is something like the the softest, uh, most low-key f*** you in all of music. Uh, it's from the, it's it's short instrumental and it's it's you know like if if crystal on candy apple gray was a statement that everything is the same you know we, we haven't sold out uh, sunspots is the opposite it's hi i'm bob this is my record and it's not what you think and it's not who's do anymore yeah exactly yeah, exactly and it's it's just uh, and then it goes from there in, into Wishing Well, which is, I think, one of his best songs, frankly, bar none. I actually agree with you about Wishing Well, but, you know, the one I think would, would uh, Wishing Well is so great. But I like even more Heartbreak a Stranger. There, there, there are four songs here. Again, they, he stacks them, right? So, like, Wishing Well, Heartbreak, A Stranger, and then there's See a Little Light, which was, like, the pop hit from this album. I guess it made it into the modern rock charts or something like that. Don't ever think about a Bob Mould or a Husker Du album in terms of their hit singles, though, because that's, like, ridiculous. These are albums they're meant to hold together as albums. But I love Heartbreak, A Stranger. It's the, like, is it the longest song? No, it's probably not. This is, that's the other thing. 
These are songs longest. on this album. These 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 are songs that run five and a half, six minutes long. Bob Mould is very clearly announcing in not only the song lengths, but in the fact that he's taking a very folky folk it's you know everybody every time someone plays an acoustic guitar you know and then it's like oh that's folk listen dude you it can do you can do hardcore on an acoustic guitar okay like it's it's not about the instrumentation it's about the attitude and the approach this is still rock this is still very melodic it's certainly not hardcore but i wouldn't call it folk it's just very pop oriented and melodic it's not like xtc skylarking pop but like you know when you get to something like brasilia cross with trenton okay yeah you're getting into some weird areas here and this is precisely the sort of thing that bob mold it seems to me at least had always been dying to explore during the later years of who's could do like you get somebody in to play cello all right wow here's some mandolin Here's some keyboards, right? It's it, it's it's not like he's bringing in like you know a you know a fifty five piece orchestra or something like that. And he, no, we're, he we're, does we're, that on his latest album. Yeah, exactly. Album. He'll get there. He'll get there, right? But you know he but doesn't not do yet. not that, not that, right? You know, and like it's obvious what he was thinking about. Like you go hear the live albums. You, this album was released, I guess, a couple years ago, with a a great uh, concert on the second disc. Uh, that I like, and I think one of the most telling things is where he plays uh, a Richard Thompson song called Shoot Out the Lights. Um, of course, I'm a huge Fairport Convention, Richard Thompson kind of a fan. So another you know, artist that I just dream of having the opportunity to discuss someday. But like that tells you like, where his mind is at right now. He's doing, he's doing this sort of stuff sort of as a conscious retreat from the guitars, from the heaviness, from everything that sort of Husker Du had said I guess I think for his mind come to represent as a straight jacket. I mean, the, the writing of this album was literally a retreat. He was living by himself on mm-hmm. a farmhouse in, in Pine Rural, City, Minnesota. right? Yeah. yeah in, in Pine City, Minnesota. And uh, he wrote the, most of these songs on, on a 12 on a 12 string guitar, which has a, a very unique sound. Uh, he describes it as kind of sounding like a bag of dimes, like a crown Royal whiskey bag filled with dimes. <laughs> uh and it's it's just very it's it's intense but but it's it's still one it's it's still 100 percent uh mold even though it, most of the album is not it is you know, could you could do an un, mtv unplugged special with 
just most of these songs. Yeah, the thing about it to me that strikes me the most is that I don't hear anything here that I think, well, that would have sounded wrong on a Who's Who Do album. No, I mean, not their last two, Candy Apple Grey and Warehouse. None of these songs would have sounded wrong. Uh, what would have sounded wrong if, is if all of these songs had been on a Who's Who Do album, and then we might have had problems because there's no guitar, or there is actually some, actually. It's not completely acoustic, by the way. It's like over-exaggerated. But it's really a wonderful album. I am not as positive on his second solo release, which is Black Sheets of Rain. It has a couple of good songs. It's a little heavier, I suppose. And he goes back to a much simpler sound. He's back to a trio, in other words. Uh, just you know, drums, bass, and him doing. Well, well he toured. He toured this. He toured workbook with a trio. But right. Uh, but but I, I I see what you're saying there. Black Sheets uh, is that he did as a solo artist for for Virgin Records, and it, it is uh, for uh, for lack of a, a better word, it is heavy. Right. It is just heavy. You you put this record on, and it just like it's like. You get hit. You're getting hit by a bus. It's, yeah, it's, my pro- my problem with it is, it is it's heavy without the sort of sort of intensity of say something like Zen Arcade. So it doesn't feel as sprightly. It's heavy, but from an older man, I suppose. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like it doesn't have like the zoom uh, that is that the earlier heavy you know Bob Mould would have had. I think the closest the closest album. Uh, to this in in his uh canon would be sugar's beaster mm-hmm. yeah um it, it's got the same same energy uh, speaking of which and i guess this is this is actually the moment where people thought hey we were just winding down we were just sort of mopping up you know doing the little you know aftermath of the band uh no we aren't quite done just yet because what did bob mold do after black sheets of rain he formed another band like he made it a point to like this isn't Bob Mould's solo career. This is a band. This is me, David Barbe, and Malcolm Travis. It's a band, man. It's a it's band. It's a band, man. It's it's like Paul McCartney joining Wings, man. Right, exactly. But the thing is, is that the first album that Sugar, this new band released, is not just some album. It's not just some footnote to the career of Husker Du or of Bob Mould. Copper Blue is the album. It is is as good as it is. It is absolutely in every way up there with Zen Arcade. You guys, you've heard how much I've praised Zen Arcade. You've heard how much I've praised Candy Apple Gray or like Flip Your Wigs, you know, New Day Rising. Copper Blue is as good as any of those albums. It is an amazing album. It is an it album where I could I could pick I could pick pick seven of the songs as like you know oh it is uh, it's one of those things that I just despair because like people won't give it the kind of attention that it deserves but it's a remarkable achievement. Well, again, people are wrong. <laughs> uh, people are are wrong. Uh, it, it is it, Copper Blue. Uh, if you if you asked me to name a flawless record. It would be the first thing that popped into my head. Would yeah. be would be Copper Blue. Um, it is uh, actually NME uh, in the UK voted it uh, ni- album of the year for 1992. It's the it's the closest that uh, that Bob Mould got to like uh, 
really like hitting the big time mm-hmm. in, in the music press, like, uh, and and it it got kind of swallowed up in in the um, the emergence of grunge. So right, uh, yeah, get... it smells like Teen Spirit and like you know, Nevermind. I don't know if they came out like right before or right after, but it was all kind of crushed together yeah. in that same era. Yeah, it was it was around around the same around the same time. I'm I'm not sure of the uh, of the exact order, but it, it got just it got swallowed up in, into that sort of uh, morass of of similar music that came out, and so it, it doesn't stand out from from the other acts that were writing and recording and touring at that time, like who screwed you does. But at the same time, it's, it's just, it's a flawless album. It's, it's got, it's a, it's a way better album than Nevermind. by the way, I'll point that out. Um, <laughs> I have I, no fear of saying that. And better than 10 by Pearl Jam. Too. I, I actually, I can't disagree with you there. And, and I love Nevermind, but <laughs> I would, I would, bring this one to a desert island before I would bring Nevermind. It's got the intensity of Husker Du, but it's more melodic and it's more complex. And if you listen to his guitar parts, like, you know, every now and then I want to, I think, oh, I should teach myself to play guitar. But then I realize I can never, you know, the effort it would take to be able to play, play something like that, like the songs on these albums, it would just take up all of my time and I would never be able to work and I would you know, starve and be homeless. Uh, but not ideal. I, no, not, not, not ideal at all. Uh, so, but copper blue, it's, 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 it's the perfect album, I think. And then they follow it up. And I don't know if, if we're done talking about this one, but what they follow it up with is, is as good or better, but, but go ahead. It's not my podcast. <laughs> Uh, Copper Blue's great. You guys are right. I do wonder, you know, how, how often do you see, you know, innovators unable to 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 eventually cash in on success of what they innovated? And this is an opportunity for, for Mold to sort of re-enter the picture in a scene that is far more receptive to some of the things that he was doing nearly a well, nearly a decade ago at this point. And I do wonder how much of the album was shaped by this knowledge that but what was being done would be embraced. That people might listen to it. I mean, Copper Bluth sold uh, uh, 300,000 copies, I think, of the first year or two of release. I mean, it's three times at least what uh, what Husker Du albums were, were moving at that time. And so the uh, the innovator here actually has the ability to, to cash in a bit. And uh, there's so much good on Copper Blue. I mean, If I Can't Change Your Mind is uh, the song that was, that was at least that we were playing on the, on the radio from from Copper Blue, it got a lot of attention. The big jangly chords, definitely a slightly different sound from some of the Who's produced stuff. is a great song the rest of the album yeah uh man on the moon is totally of the time but in the best way possible 
um, a, a good idea sounds space is the place pixies. scott space is the place yeah. it's uh sun rock kind of a a, a tribute there yeah and by the way i, I can't i can't understand like if you were playing if i can't change your mind why in god's name were you not playing helpless which is about a hundred times better than the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song called <laughs> "Helpless." It is, I think, I mean, maybe the best song in the rock genre called "Helpless." It has a riff that will follow or you from Hamilton sunrise. Wrote, <laughs> thank you for the reference, Andrew. This is a song whose riff will follow you from sunrise to sunset once you hear it. seems effortless i don't understand like you know what where the burst of inspiration came from from mold but it, it was it was just you know almost preternatural the way this came out and then you know of course you know what happens next is also in its own weird kind of reverse way equally as awesome but finish your thoughts scott before i uh, stomp on you all over again um I think I was done, actually. <laughs> oh, well, no, 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 one more thing. This, uh, with Copper Blue and the rest of Sugar, man, you get the more, you get the thicker, bigger drum sound, which I think most songs deserve, especially the ones that are written in, in this way. Um, he and, also sings like a normal human being yes, on these records, which too. helps. <laughs> yeah. So, I uh, now, am I guessing wrong, Andrew, or... Am I correct in my assumption that the, the, the one that you were going to mention next uh, as being also equally as great is Beaster? Yes, you are correct. Go for it. It's your, it's your floor, my friend. So Beaster is uh, it's an EP. It's, uh, it's, six, it's six songs. It was recorded around the same time as, as Copper Blue. Uh, but, it, but it came out afterwards because these six songs are are much, much darker. It's, it's the, uh, Beaster is the black sheets of rain to copper blues workbook. Yes, exactly. Uh, but it, it, that does, but while, while black sheets of rain can be divisive to some, uh, Beaster is not, it is, it is simply fantastic. Uh, the, it just, it, it, it's almost like, uh, warehouse in that it, it starts and it never it just hits you like a, like a fire hose i mean i i think that there are songs on here like uh was, was it judas cradle that are just like just intense and uh kind of as close as bob mole will ever return in my mind to sort of that weird early kind of throbbingly adolescent intensity and of yeah, the anger, right, right, exactly. The anger of, of like early Who's Could Do. Yeah, 
which of course is what first hooked me into the Hooskers, uh, you know, in the first place. So yeah, this is this is great. Um, you listen, we, the problem with this episode, unfortunately, it's it's like you know, well, there are twenty four, maybe more albums from the Bob Mould solo career that we could conceivably cover. Uh, we wanted to do him at least some justice, particularly to point out how great these Sugar Records are. Uh, guys, please just get Beaster, please get Copper Blue, um, and also, yeah, I think get Workbook too. But is there anything else before we wrap it up, Andrew, that you really want the the, the folks out there to hear from Bob Mould's solo career? Um, well, as Joe Biden would say, folks. Uh, if if you're gonna listen, if you're gonna listen to Bomb Mold solo records, and you like the first two, and and you like Sugar, uh, but you don't want to go in too deep, a good stopping point uh, is the Last Dog and Pony Show. Uh, it's not the next album he did after Copper Blue or Beaster. Sugar put out one more called File Under Easy Listening, which is <laughs> go- which is not easy listening, but no, right, exactly. The the title is ironic. Get it. But um, he he then put out a self-titled solo album, which is generally known as the Hubcap record because it has a hubcap on the cover. See how that works? Yeah, the Bob uh, Mould album, right? But uh, the the album after that is called The Last Dog and Pony Show, and, and that's because he announced with great fanfare that he was going to quit writing and touring with, uh, with power trios. He was done with music. Uh, and the uh, this album, uh, the tour that uh, that came with it uh, was documented in an album that's known as Live Dog '98. Uh, this was in 1998, obviously, and he he went on a tour uh, with actually a, a four piece with a second guitarist uh, named Michael Saravis, uh, I think is how you say it. And if you're a fan of the Fox show Fringe. You would know him as uh, the Observer, September, the the bald guy in the suit. That wait, plays. what? Are you serious? I am a hundred percent. I have never known this. I remember Fringe. It was sort of yeah. like kind of a, a neat X Files, except there's there's Spock there in a secondary role, and sort of. that's that guy. Oh my that, lord! Yep, that guy. He was uh, a, pl- he played with Bob Mould. He played in the 1998 edition of Bob Mould Band for at least part of the tour um he <laughs> fired him after like a, i think like halfway through the tour he decided he liked playing in a trio better but the last show that uh, this guy played it was was recorded uh, put out as this live album which i just i think is is fantastic it's it's a great uh document of the early early years of of bomb solo career uh and the album that the tour was for, The Last Dog and Pony Show, uh, is, I think, very good. Um, it's, it's pretty intense. It's got a lot of guitar, uh, a, lot of, a lot of great lyrics. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a weird, like, sort of rap track in there called Mega Manic, which, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, <laughs> he was, but you could see he, he was starting to play around with, with other stuff. Um, but... The, the live dog 98 and, and the last dog and pony show albums I think are are um, are very very good um, the hubcap records good too but then he stopped uh, he stopped touring he stopped uh, writing 
guitar music. He did a stint as a writer for World Championship Wrestling, WCW. Oh, yeah. You know, people actually asked me to make sure that we mentioned this on the show. (laughs) Bob Mould is a huge fan of professional wrestling. And hey, you know what? What's wrong with that? It, it, Nothing. It's, it, 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 it's one of our great demonic art forms, is it not? So, yeah, he actually took up a job writing scripts, which is just like Bob Mould. This is the dude who like, did Husker do. This is the dude who did Sugar. He's just like, you know what? Screw it. I want to write some scripts. I want to get into my kayfabe. I just I find that to be one of the great amusing weird left turns in rock history. I I think I think it's great, and you know, I'm I'm not a professional wrestling fan, but I I, I do find I do find it just a bit delicious, and I, you know I respect I respect that he was able to just walk away. It's like you know what I'm going to do something else now, but luckily for us uh, that didn't last. Right. Uh, he, from from what I remember, um, he moved to New York. Um, got into the the gay scene there, and uh, got into like dance music and and electronic music. Yeah, that electronic uh, album is the one of his I've never liked at all. No, um, me, me either. Uh, it's called Modulate. Yeah. If you like electronic, I'm not sure if you'll like it, but it's it's interesting. And he was you know trying to do stuff, but um, the first time I saw him in concert was in 2005 after he released this album called body of song, which mm-hmm. was kind of an attempt to fuse um, his interest in electronic with his previous life as, as a guitar player. And he, he toured uh, that album with Brendan Canty, the drummer from Fugazi and a uh, bass player named Jason Narducci uh, with whom he still uh, tours as part of his current band. And um, I will skip ahead and just briefly touch on, uh, on his post 2012 uh, period, there are a couple albums after 2005, which is when Bob Mould's uh, Body of Song came out. But uh, since 2012, he's been on a tear um, and don't need to get into those albums uh, now because um, I guess you know we're out of time. It could be a different but, episode, but I'll tell you, I do. I, yeah. I actually do like Silver Age quite a bit. I have to say, this is his tenth solo album, by the way. So, like, as, as we're talking about, like, this is a weird kind of like thing to put as an appendix to this episode because it's like it's far longer than the Who's Do <laughs> career. This could, make, this could be a trailer for another one, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, you know, there's no way you can really do it Justin. in a world where Bob Mould <laughs> is releasing new music. In a world where Bob Mould has embraced the club scene and is doing electronica, yeah, exactly. So, like, yeah, let's let you know, you know, mention a couple more things, and then yeah, we we have to just say to you folks, Bob Mould as uh, is continues to be a vital, you know, an interesting singer and songwriter and you know recording artist. Although we cannot do him justice because we were here today to talk about the Hooskers. But wrap it up, Andrew. I want you to give you give your last shots. Is this the um, the five songs? No, not at all. If you have if you yet? have any if you have any further songs from his later career that you think should be mentioned, this is your time ah. to do it. Speak now or forever hold your three piece band. Nice, nicely done. Uh, well, I, I would say from his from his latter period, uh, most recent period, post two thousand twelve, uh, Silver Age, which you mentioned, uh, starts a, a trio of records that continues with Beauty and Ruin, uh, which might be my favorite of his most recent 
recent releases, and then Patch the Sky. And Beauty and Ruin and Patch the Sky were both written uh, as he lost his um, his mother and then his father, uh, I believe. Um, and they're both very, I think, heavy, uh, very emotional records, but are, are still are still very good. Silver Age, which you mentioned, is is almost uh, it was toured with a um, I think a 20th anniversary uh, tour for Copper Blue. So he played the whole Copper Blue record start to finish and then played uh, a mix set. And Silver Age is almost an echo to Copper Blue. And it's really when he's returned to this power trio intense guitar style that he's continued today. Right. Man. Scott, I know, I know you have really deep opinions about the, <laughs> the, the whole Bob Mold soul era. So you know what I you can do? You can, you can email them to me. <laughs> and to anyone else who's interested. <laughs> right. That's the political beach. Sort of stub stack. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the work. You know, of- you, you need, we we need a, We need a, a political beats Substack newsletter. <laughs> well, it's not enough time of the day, frankly. <laughs> no, indeed not. <laughs> uh, that's the political beats look at the work of Husker Du, and of course Bob Mold as well. We enter the portion of the program where, yes, we do give you your two albums that you should own from the career of our artist, and five songs you absolutely have to hear from each of the three hosts of this here program. And we start with our guest first, Andrew Feinberg. Andrew, go ahead with your two albums and your five songs, please. All right. Uh, This may not come as a surprise, but my first of the two albums is The Living End. Uh, The Living End is the document of what Husker Du sounded like as a live band. It was recorded as they were coming apart at the seams, and and it reveals just despite how f***ed up everything was uh, off stage, they were just still such a tight band on stage. And uh, the second of the two albums uh, is the Live Dog 98 album that I mentioned. Uh, for the same reason, it's, it's a document of uh, what Bob Mould's first solo period uh, was like in terms of what the performance sounded like. And five songs from each, uh, from Living End, I would say hardly getting over it because there's a just soaring guitar solo that does not appear on the uh, Candy Apple Gray version. And it's just a much more intense song live. Um, New Day Rising, Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill, and now that you know me which is a song that grant hart uh, later recorded on his first solo album called intolerance and uh, the version on intolerance is good but the recorded uh, version from this who's Do live album it shows where things could have gone and it, and it's just a i think a, a fantastic song was that four or five you know what no one's keeping track anymore you just go with it man um, and then I guess I think that was four. Um, and then uh, what was my fifth from Living End? Oh yeah. And then um, books about UFOs from the Living End. It's different from the album version, but it's I, I think it's better. Um, and then from live from the Live Dog '98 live album, 
I would say um, Moving Trucks, which is the opening track from The Last Dog and Pony Show. It's it's a great song. I wish he played it more uh, at his live shows, but for whatever reason, he doesn't. Um, Taking Everything uh, is the track that follows that off of The Last Dog and Pony Show. Um, and then, uh, i trying to remember what's on the album. <laughs> there's just so there's so many damn songs ah um but the Ain't one no the pressure. one the the one um i'll give you i'll give you um oh yeah um uh, see a little light uh which i i'm pretty sure he plays on that album and then um hanging tree which from, is from black sheets of rain from yeah. black sheets of rain which is Dark, 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 beyond dark. I mean, the name of the song is Hanging Tree. <laughs> but at, at the same time, it's just such an intense performance. I, I love live albums, if I haven't uh, made that clear. Yeah, clearly. Um, yeah. But there's, there's, I think, nothing better than a good live album to just showcase what, what an artist is about. And those songs and those albums, I think, are uh, a pretty good picture of, of what the the first solo period uh, of Bob Mould and Husker Du were about. Ah. All right, my uh, two albums um, go from the uh, from the recorded portion of the catalog, and I think I'm, I think I'm going to choose the two in the middle: uh, New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig would be the two albums I would uh, I would recommend. the The five songs. Um, uh, Diane from early on in their career. Uh, Turn on the News, a uh, heart song. Uh, Books about UFOs, which is fabulous despite the uh, maybe some flaws on the production end, as Jeff pointed out previously. Uh, a great Bob Mould song, Makes No Sense at All. And one more Mould song, which is Games. We talked about that quite a bit earlier on in the show. That would be my five. Jeff, over to you. Oh, dear. You know, I think it's also really funny is that we've discussed the, the full scope of Husker Du and also Bob Mould's career, and we're, we're not going to have a single repeat on any of our two albums <laughs> because my two albums are Zen Arcade. This You knew it was coming because obviously I've fawned over it enough already. Candy Apple Gray would be my second pick, I think, of the two Warner's albums. This is the one that I like the more. Um, maybe it's a little more focused. There is that that entire, you know, as Andrew described it, the fire hose effect that comes out of Warehouse, where she's just like, <laughs> so many songs, and everyone's fighting with one another to, like, taunt themselves. Doesn't work for me as well. Uh, I'll also, as an honorable mention, just say that, like, listen, <clears throat> it's not the Husker Du album, uh, but you have to get Copper Blue by Sugar. It is so good. It is one of the finest albums of the early 90s. As I said, I think it's better than Nevermind. I think it's better than 10. I think it's better than Super Unknown uh, or Bad Moto Finger. I mean, it is an album. It, it was like you know, the old man coming back to teach the kids how it's done. I, I think I, – sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you on this. No. But I, I, th I think Copper Blue um, – I think it stands apart from everything else that he's that he's done before or since. Yeah, I, 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 it's that it's just that good that it, it really can't be included in in these you know the pick two albums because 
that's why that's why I felt no compunctions about throwing it in here. <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's not. It, I I don't think honorable mention does it justice. It's right. it's it's the cannot be quantified on on the on you know favorite albums because it's just too it's too good to to judge with the others. Yeah, well, my attitude is like the, the, we're doing Husker do so. This is like nominally a solo project, but listen, this is this should have been like the follow up. This could have been the follow up to a Hooskers album. It's that good. But now, as for my songs, holy Christ, I wrote down ten tracks. What the heck am I supposed to do with this mess? Um, I'm just gonna read them off to you because you know what? Uh, all the rules are out the window already. Anyway, uh, real world. Fifty five percent have to be Bob Mold songs. Though. Uh, well, I think actually that that actually works. Th- those are the rules. I genuinely tend to prefer the mold songs. Maybe I'm an angsty guy myself. Uh, so, real world from the Metal Circus House EP. Oh my gosh, that's the that's the beginning of the the the, the Husker Du Fire and Flame. You you, you want to know why they became what they became, why they became so famous, why they became so beloved? You hear that just giant unfurling guitar riff that opens the song right there. You knew what this was going to be eight miles high. Greatest cover. One of the greatest covers of all time. Hey, go back and listen to our other covers episode. Listen to what we said here. Chartered trips. That is one of the most uh, sort of mathematically perfect guitar rock riffs that has ever been written. Not just in the eighties, not just in rock ever. It is perfect. And and I heard it the first time I heard it, uh, my jaw dropped and I was like, why hadn't I heard this before? Uh, and I hadn't heard it before because Bob Mould stole it and no one else will be able to take it again. Uh, newest industry, I'll never forget you, whatever. Notice a lot of songs from the Zen Arcade era. These are songs that meant a lot to me. But you know, maybe I can't include them in my top five. So what is another one I would genuinely put? It's I Apologize from New Day Rising, which I just think is awesome. A wonderfully poppy song written about a deeply quotidian topic, which is just like having an argument with your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever. And, you know, sort of getting over it and, you know, trying to like, you know, he obviously he, he got into a huge fight and then he went to his guitar and he strummed out these chords and he ended up writing a pop classic. Games. And then hardly getting over it from Candy Apple Gray. Listen, there are a lot of fantastic songs from the Warners era, but if I had to choose one, it's hardly getting over it. Uh, I think it's very uncharacteristic for what Husker Du were doing at that time. It's also very indicative of where Bob Mould was going to be going in his solo career. Uh, It's just moving frankly uh in, in in every way and uh it, it's a song that i i can never get tired of listening to
we are, the Political Beats look at the career of Husker Du and Bob Mould as well. We uh, thank our guest for the program, Andrew Feinberg, D.C.-based journalist, uh, coverage of the White House and Capitol Hill. You can find it Independent, Newsweek, Breakfast Media, Politico, Magazine, and other places at Andrew Feinberg on Twitter. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, Jeff Blair, my tag team partner. Jeff, uh, fine show. I am not sure where we're going next, but I know we have a few things in mind. Well, I just hope that uh, legal problems and uh, angry recriminations do not prevent this episode from getting released on time. <laughs> or at least mastered correctly. Remastered. Yes. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram, S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. Reminder to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, please leave reviews. Follow the show on Facebook, search for Political Beats, or on Twitter to at political underscore beats, where you can join the conversation. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.